0: Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We've got a special episode for you here this week. 2022 FIDE Candidates Preview Extravaganza, double feature featuring Grandmaster Robert Hess and then Ty Proust-Zimmerman of the Chess by the Numbers blog. First up is Grandmaster Hess, Robert takes it player by player, discussing each player, sharing things he's noticed about their playing style, assessing their chances, telling a few stories, having a few laughs. We've got about an hour straight on each player one by one with Grandmaster Robert Hess. After that, we catch up on general chess matters. Robert is a return guest, but I haven't talked to him since episode 40 in 2017. So we spent about 45 minutes catching up on other chess related matters. And after that, We are joined by Ty Proust-Zimmerman of the Chess by the Numbers blog, a blog that I always enjoy reading. Ty provides an analytical perspective using his ELO-based model. When Ty shares what his model uh, forecasts for this match, what probabilities it assesses, uh, the chances of each player, and shares a few interesting nuggets. So be sure to stick around after the Hess interview to hear what Ty Proust-Zimmerman has to say. This is a long and detailed Preview episode. So we are releasing it 10 days before the candidates starts so that y'all will have plenty of time to listen. As for what the candidates is, I suspect many of you know, it's the tournament that determines who gets to challenge the world champion uh, for the world title. That match will take place in 2023. And of course, the current world champion is Magnus Carlsen, and this year there is the the added wrinkle that we don't know for sure if Magnus Carlsen is going to defend his title. In fact, he has said it is more likely than not that he will not defend his title. So we don't spend a ton of time discussing that angle on this particular episode. We've discussed it before. We've discussed it again. But as a standalone tournament, the candidates is entertaining in its own right. So this one is just discussing the competitors in the tournament. The format of the tournament, of course, is it begins June 17th. It runs through July 4th. It's what's called a double round robin, which means everyone plays against everyone and they play each other twice. The highest cumulative score, of course, is the winner of the tournament. In the event of a tie, there are rapid tie breaks in place. So the winner will be determined over the board. Uh, The match will be broadcast on all of the major chess sites. The games are at 3 p.m. Madrid time, which is 9 a.m. New York City time. Adjust for your time zone accordingly. Um, Time control 120 minutes for the first 40 moves, 50 minutes for the next 20 moves, then 15 minutes for the rest of the game with a 30-second increment. That's a complicated way of saying the games are really long. Draws by mutual agreement are forbidden before the 40th move. So they are encouraging long games, fighting chess, and um, The Perpetual Chess coverage will mostly be business as usual, meaning we will continue to release our weekly Evergreen episodes every Tuesday. In those episodes, even during the candidates, you won't hear any discussion of the candidates, but we will have two bonus episodes for you. Friday, June 24th, after round six, and Saturday, July 2nd, after round 12. We will give you a quick rundown on what's happening in the match. I will try to line up a guest or two to join me for those, as I did when covering the world championship. And of course, there will be plenty of discussion of the FIDE candidates here on this pod when it's over. The chess, the intrigue, the historical impact, um, and of course, the inevitable discussion about whether the match will take place. And of course, one thing to keep in mind as you all track this match is if Magnus decides not to defend his title, then it's highly likely that FIDE will try to arrange a match between the top two finishers of the candidates. So again, so much historical intrigue. Really looking forward to seeing the chess and everything that comes along with it. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. As always, timestamps for the topics discussed are in the show description. And remember to stick around for Ty Proust-Zimmerman at the conclusion of the Hess interview. So let's get you to the conversation with Grandmaster Robert Hess right after we hear about what's new from our friends at chessable.com. Listeners, it's finally here. Sharoshevsky's Endgame Strategy, one of my favorite chess books of all time, is getting the Chessable treatment. Revised and expanded, and the video presentation is done by none other than 2018 U.S. champion Grandmaster Sam Shanklin. And guess what? They have a free one-hour video that you can check out on the principle of two weaknesses done by Shanklin himself. So that's just one of the many offerings from Chessable.com. They also, of course, are constantly dropping new opening, endgame tactics courses, all of which feature their proprietary move trainer technology to help you uh, remember what you learn. So the links for anything mentioned, as always, are in the show description. So be sure to check out chessable.com for endgame strategy and all of their other new material.
2: Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day!
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a great guest joining this week a many times scholastic champion, a 2010 Sanford Fellow. He tied for second in the 2009 US Championships, member of the 2010 US Olympiad team, a Yale grad who studied history but then found his way back into chess, and of course, these days, best known as a popular chess.com commentator, Twitch streamer, coach. He is a return guest here on the pod, and he will be recover excuse me, not recovering, covering the candidates tournament alongside I am Daniel Wrench and GM Daniel Naroditsky for chess.com when the candidates rolls around. And that is one of the primary topics we will be discussing. But without further ado, let's welcome Grandmaster Robert Hess back to the show. Hey, Robert, what's going on? Well, first up, Ben, thanks for having me again. And
3: second of all, thanks for talking about my playing career, because, you know, I don't really touch those pieces too often these days. And thank you for reminding people that once upon a time, I had some successes.
0: Yeah, I did have to go back to 2010. But then again, Robert, later, in, later on in this show, we're going to discuss your 2019 over-the-board exploits. So I know that when you dust off the chess pieces, you can, you can still make a good move or two. Yeah, I do remember every now and then how the pieces move. So thank you for
3: reminding everybody.
0: Yeah, no, it's um, quite an accomplished player and uh, awesome commentator as well. And the primary focus, at least early on here in this conversation, Robert, the candidates. So you've had a busy week. You're joining me here on Friday, May 27th. And of course, the candidates begins on June 17th in Madrid. And just before we recorded, Robert, you um, or began recording, you informed me that you will be going to the candidates and covering it live. Uh, so when when do you take off for Madrid? Yeah, I take off
3: June 13th I believe so I get there on the 14th get a few days to help with setting up making sure that everything's in order and preparing for the event because you know it's going to be the highlight of 2022 in many ways determining who Magnus carlson faces or chooses not to face but <laughs> either way it's uh, going to be a fun time for sure
0: yeah I can't wait I mean this is going to get me unnaturally excited and it's still weeks away and this will come out June 7th so listeners hopefully will pace themselves um as they listen and as the tournament approaches. But Robert, one question I have for you, because uh, you and your team over at chess.com, you guys did an awesome job on the World Championship, and that's a different type of event, but how does your preparation compare uh, for the candidates as opposed to the World Championship? Yeah, it might be even better this time. I know that's setting a high
3: bar because a lot of people enjoyed our World Championship coverage, Uh, but we have a team that we're very happy with. I'm going to be commenting alongside... International Master Almira Skripchenko. Uh, for the most part, Danny Wrench will be there. Danya will be joining as well. Um, so uh, it's going to be awesome. And what's the preparation like? We dive into the stats. We try to create graphics that people will appreciate, just make it as entertaining
0: in addition to as educational as possible. Okay, excellent. And you've, again, you've had a crazy week. I mean, the I Am Not a GM is ongoing. Youth, youth, uh, speed chess championships, many tournaments. Um, so how much time are you even getting to think about the candidates with it still three weeks out here as we record? It's a great question because I should be thinking more. Uh, of <laughs> course, I'm traveling in a few weeks.
3: Uh, wardrobe needs to be up to date and nice because the event itself in Madrid is played in the Chamber of Commerce. And oh, wow. I'm pretty positive I will be commentating out of there in one of the very beautiful rooms that they have. So, uh, you know, there's that logistical concern. But in in terms of preparation, I've kind of been always thinking about the candidates, right? I, I cover the events. Uh, the I Am Not GM Speeches Championship has been awesome to it cover. Has, yeah. It's really one of the best events out there. But in the back of my head, and I guess this is getting back to being a chess player uh, in my heart of hearts, it's like, well, we're about to see. Fabiano Caruana, Hikaru Nakamura, Dingley-Ren, Ali reza Yana Jan Napamashi, Jan Chistav Duda, Timur Rajabov. Who am I missing in this list? There's one player I think I just left off. Apologies did, in did advance. Did you get Rapport, maybe? Rapport, who just transferred
0: federations. Excuse ah, me. you're on top of it. Yeah.
3: I'm on top of all the news. So, yeah, I'm really excited for that. How could I not be?
0: Yeah, I, I can't wait as well. And Robert, what I thought we would do, again, even though you haven't done your uh, your deep prep yet, I have a feeling you can talk about each player. And of course, here on this weekly chess podcast, this is not the first time we've talked about the candidates, believe it or not, Robert. But this is our official preview episode. So what I've mostly been doing is like try to get someone like Ben Feingold on the record about like who he thinks is gonna win. And you know, he can he can obviously speak extemporaneously about tournament but this time i want to give listeners a little bit of info about each player because obviously those of us who can will be sweating the game so i've got a fun fact prepared against each player some biographical information and then robert hopefully you could share a few thoughts about each one as well sure thing all right let's do it so we're going to go in reverse uh rating order and we're going to begin with the aforementioned jan christoph duda uh who of course is 24 years of age rated 2750, number 16 in the world from poland I've got a fun fact for you, Robert. Or first, you could tell me what comes to mind when we discuss Duda. You take the lead. Um, you know, your okay. Guess, here's a so. fun fact for you. He has over two thousand chess books. Was given five hundred by his chess coach, his childhood chess coach, Andrej Ehrlich. Um, and he said that the miraculous world of chess was his favorite book, and he read it so often that he memorized not only a lot of the facts from it but the pictures as well. Did you just say two thousand? Two thousand chess books. He's only twenty-four. <laughs> <laughs> that is ridiculous, but more power to him. It just shows what a tremendous student the game he is. Yeah, you know, and we talk sometimes, like Jesse Cry likes to bemoan the death of chess books, and I always say here on the pod, like, you know, they're not dead on perpetual chess. They might be dead for everyone else, but here um, <laughs> here, here, they're going strong. But to see that uh, one of the younger players in, uh, you know, this global, obviously, world-class competition with the world championship Um, match on the line is such a chess bibliophile. I was heartened to hear that as well. I love hearing that. I
3: mean, I have not been a voracious chess reader myself. I do read a ton, just they don't have to be chess books. Uh, But to hear that Duda, you know, since childhood has loved the game that much and continues to pursue not just playing, but also researching and reading and learning about his great predecessors to steal probably some of the books on his shelf. Uh, It's
0: really cool to hear that. Yeah, very likely. And what would you say about his chess game, Robert? And what do you think about like how how good are his prospects? Because obviously he's the lowest rated, but all the ratings are close and he's also among the youngest. So I feel like uh, he can't be discounted. Yeah, I'm not somebody who would ever bet on chess, but I've
3: seen some of the odds and he tends to be at the bottom of those lists. And that makes sense given the rating, given his lack of experience in the candidates. But I think that Duda is a tremendous player, right? You don't end Magnus Carlson's unbeaten streak by accident. That's yeah. not something anybody can just do. I think that Duda, after winning the World Cup, he was kind of all the rage for a bit, but the World Cup, you know how to judge that? and then compare it to the candidates, they're very different things, right? Short sprints when you're playing two game mini matches against players. And that's not to take anything away from the legendary he's 24, but you know, his age may belie the legendary status. He now holds, uh, he's fantastic. And we just saw in the quicker time controls, he can uh, fight with the best of them. He won that grand chess tour event in Poland. So, uh, he's not doing so badly for his national image. I mean, he must be a hero at this point, but in terms of the candidates uh, themselves, I have a hard time seeing him win. And that's not because he's not an exceptionally strong player, uh, but he lacks the experience in a grueling 14 round double round Robin against every single top player, not named Magnus Carlsen for the most part that you can think of. So I I just have a hard time envisioning his victory, but he's certainly going to play a part because he can beat anybody in the field.
0: Yeah, I've always enjoyed enjoyed his playing. And on the topic of his exceptional skill in the faster time controls, I was happy to see that this time around there will be a rapid tie break if they're tied at the end of the tournament um even if there's multiple people tied they have it mapped out in advance so props to fide for that and that of course if dudo were to reach a position where he's tied at the end like depending on who he plays that could be an advantage although you know all these guys are so good at all formats of chess that it's a, uh, you know anyone can do anything at, at any point um so next up robert We've got Timur, Rajab, Raj, excuse me, <laughs> Timur Rajabov. Number, he is 35 years of age, rated 2753, number 13 in the world, of course, from Azerbaijan. You ready for the fun fact, Robert? Let's go. I tried to go deep on the fun facts, but this one you might know. Um, his dad uh, was a chemical engineer who went to the same chess school as Kasparov at the same time in Baku. Did not know that. I learned something new every day and I love trivia.
3: So thanks for that.
0: All right. Yeah. And feel free to drop these without attribution when you're uh, when you're announcing, Robert. So um, but but yeah. So when I interviewed Ben Feingold a couple of weeks back, Robert, he said that Rajabov is the one person that he would be really surprised if he won. Um, do you do you agree with that hot take? I think it's a universal
3: feeling. Rajabov does not play much chess these days. And when he does, he has a tendency to make draws. Now, do I feel like his over the board play is unfairly maligned? Yeah, a bit. We have to remember that Rajabov hasn't only been playing chess for the last couple of years, right? Historically, he has been a tremendous fighter. And there's a reason he dropped his rating all the way below 2,700 and worked his way right back up to 2,750 plus. There's a reason he won. Speaking of the World Cup, like we just did for Duda, that Rajabov won the World Cup, beating Ding Li Ren in the final. He qualified for the previous candidates. He didn't play for health and safety concerns and we know that whole story now that saga but as it pertains to this specific event do i think that rajava will win no he is the has the lowest odds in my opinion he just hasn't shown anything that resembles top few level play and maybe he has it in him it's not impossible but we have not seen anything that would indicate that he is really aiming to play for the world championship because we really just haven't seen much of him except in streaming and online events. So I could not possibly see him winning the tournament. If he won, would I, you know, be astonished? Okay. He's a great player, but it's super unlikely.
0: Yeah. And also the oldest, which, you know, it's an unfortunate truth, but being 35, you know, this is a long tournament. So, um, you know, energy and, and as you say, motivation is more of a question for him than some of the other players, but you never know. I mean, he might be looking at this as his last chance and certainly, uh, has an outstanding long-term record as a competitor, uh, stretching back to, um, the, you know, the 2000 decade. So, um, you never know, but I agree overall with your assessment. And I'll say
3: that as it pertains to an older guard winning a candidates, there's a certain legend named Vichy Anand who did that not so long ago. So uh, maybe there's a bit of a truth to being older in the field against some of these uh, really strong and up and comers or just people who've been around for a while at this point, but there's still a chance.
0: Yeah. And Vishy still making noise to this day. Just, a, just amazing. What, what a, what a player, what an inspiration for an old guy like me. Um, not quite as old age 34, Hikaru Nakamura, rated 2760, number 11 from the United States. I feel like all the fun facts have been unearthed about Hikaru, um, but what I unearthed is this is a quote from Hikaru. A juicer is whatever you want it to be. The juice is the juice. You know, I'm not, as regular listeners know, I uh, I watch Twitch here and there, but I'm, uh, I'm I'm not watching it all the time. And every time I watch Hikaru, I'm dazzled by a few things. I'm dazzled by his facility with drawing the arrows on the chessboard. Of course, I'm dazzled by the speed and accuracy of his combination. And I'm dazzled by the random slang that he's come up with, such as juicer. So that was my fun fact regarding Hikaru because I was like, as I was researching, I was I should look that up finally. What on earth? he's talking about when he talks about juicers well you know many of
3: his fun facts as you were saying have been unearthed because he is talking for his stream many hours a day so yeah it's hard to come up with a unique fact i'm sure
0: yeah absolute legend though and obviously this has been a hot button topic here on the pod but robert someone who knows hikaru well um battled him over the board in um while you guys were both coming up um how do you assess his chances he is the most difficult player for me to pinpoint. So he is taking this
3: event seriously. That's abundantly clear. He is taking time off from his stream. He's doing, you know, quote unquote, secret preparation for the candidates. And that's no surprise, right? This is a huge opportunity for him. And we've heard interviews where he said he may be, even be a better chess player now than he was in the past, despite the fact that his rating at one point was number two in the world and I think twenty eight sixteen at his peak, if I'm remembering that number correctly. And so... That would be surprising to hear, right? Well, how could he possibly be better now with the lower rating? But he doesn't have that pressure because if chess doesn't work out for him, and we know there isn't that much money in chess, sure, for the top group, they can make a very good living. But after that, well, it's tough. You're not getting invites. There's just not a huge prize funds in many tournaments. So he doesn't have to worry about all that. And that's a huge psychological benefit because if he scores last place in the candidates, he goes back to what he's been doing. Streaming successfully. And as it goes for his over the board play, I think, you know, there are several buckets of fans right now. There are the Hikaru fans who started watching during the pandemic, have followed Chess because of his streaming. And we love those people and we're happy to have them, but maybe they don't have the entire history of not just Hikaru, but of chess. And so they see him win the Fide Grand Prix series. And they say, well, he won the Fide Grand Prix series. He must be a favorite. He's in the best form. He's doing all this. But that's, again, another short sprint, right? He did fantastically well. I don't want to take anything away from him. But if you look at the ratings and the players and the candidates, yes, Hikaru got through Levon Aronian. He got through Andre Yesopenko. He got through... Uh, these great players who stood in his path and that's not taking anything away from him and apologies about the siren uh, <laughs> you know, it, as anyone who's watched me commentate before they sometimes happen welcome to new york city uh but those events it was a bit of a mixed bag right these are those six round round robins then you got into two game matches where there's going to be rapid and uh tie breaks so I don't know quite how to judge him. I was impressed with his play, but I also can't forget that he was one move away from being eliminated, right? Grigory Oparin had him dead in the water. Like Hikaru was completely lost. I was commentating on that. And on one hand, you can credit Hikaru's resourcefulness that we all know and appreciate because he is as resourceful as a defender as you could ever see. Historic level defense. But that wasn't really his defense. That was just not finding a knockout blow that was really obvious for a player of Oparin's caliber. So it could have gone differently. And that's not to take anything away from what Hikaru has accomplished because he dusted off, you know, the pieces. He came back. He did everything you could ask for, for of him. He won the grand prix cycle and he could only play two events. He scored a win and scored a second place. I mean, really that, that's exceptional. Uh, but one game, one move could have changed the entire outcome. So I don't know where he currently fits in this field in terms of being a favorite or should I suggest that he is one of the you know bottom half? I really don't know, even as impressed as I've been in all of his online play, winning the Rapid Chess Championship, now three weeks running, winning the Speed Chess Championships against all the top players in the world. So I could go on and on, but I feel like it's a story that will write its ending come the end of the candidates and one right now that I could not possibly pen.
0: Yeah, well said. Uh, I mean, certainly, and lends an air of unpredictability. And Robert, I mean, as a fellow sports fan, you know that that's just the way competitive events unfold. It's always one bounce of the ball, you know, it's always. And then you write the narrative as if it was preordained, you know, Um, I would say that's true every year except for this one, because the NBA playoffs have been a nightmare to watch. It's like a <laughs> 15-point victory
3: for one team, a 15-point victory for the other. No close games. So it's not so much one bounce of the ball here, but in the candidates, I think that one single move could change the entire tournament.
0: Yeah, and and as you say, certainly altered Hikaru's fate. And yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, to me, the, there's compelling aspects to anyone winning the candidates, but of course, like, the best headlines would be either he or Faruja, who we, who we will get to in due time. And I also, I just love the sort of overarching narrative where I feel like Hakaru was like basically retired. There's like, it's like the one last heist narrative. He's like the retired you know jewel thief who had his feet up at the beach and then his friend comes and pulls him and is like come on do it one more time and now he's he's really working at it and he's really taking his craft seriously and obviously um all the talent and accomplishments in the world so yeah something i'm definitely looking forward to and of course he plays fabiano in round one since they're both from the united states so certainly have that game in particular uh, circled
3: yeah and a, a few notes about you know his retirement quote unquote like hikaru was At some points, very vocal. I think he leaned into the joke, but he never claimed to be retired. Uh, He doesn't accept all the invitations he used to because, when I'm sure, you're making the type of money that he is, you have some priorities. Uh, But I, I feel like people just decided that he was retired for him, and he was like, "Okay, I'll lean into it because if people are gonna under appreciate me or gonna underestimate me now, that's favorable." for me, psychologically in chess, at its core can be a very psychological game, especially when we're talking within the margins of super grandmasters at the best of the best level where one inaccuracy leads to an uncomfortable position and then that leads to a loss. I mean, we saw Anatoly Karpov become a world champion and the amount of games that I've gone through of his where you're just like, where did his opponent go wrong exactly? It seemed like it was fine two moves ago. Now I'm starting to feel a little uncomfortable and now I'm starting to feel like you're lost even though the eval bar says, eh, it's only like, three-tenths of a pawn better. So, uh, I mean, Hikaru is a really fascinating case study, and we'll see how the candidates go for him. But I I really enjoyed hearing his fellow competitors talk about him, where they say, Hikaru is the most practiced at anybody. Because while most people have said, oh, blitz isn't good for you, yada, 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 he's playing these blitz events and blitz games against really strong opponents. He is working on his tactics every day in In those blitz games, he's playing the rapid tournaments where he has done extraordinarily well. And it's not like he's just playing against the random, you know, hustler in the park. With, of course, Mark Jackson, voice. All due respect to them. <laughs> he is doing it against Magnus Carlsen, against Fabiano Caruana, Levon Aronian. You name a player, they're there. So, I think that for Hikaru, he has been practicing this whole time. It's just a different form. Uh, than a different medium than everybody is used to, uh, but just because he's not locked away in a room with a, an engine in a second for twelve hours a day does not mean that he's not putting in hard work. And again, it remains to be seen if that is going to lead to the ultimate success of winning the candidates. And you were touching upon this. I think that the media, the masses, they are rooting for Ekaru because you know that storyline is unreal hikaru nakamura the biggest streamer on the planet and magnus carlson the best chess player on the planet that just would have all the journalists salivating
0: yeah no but you make a fair point that i could have been projecting a bit to say that he's that he's retired certainly uh you know that's for him to say not for me to say and and magnus himself was very complimentary as you uh, alluded to his peers being very complimentary of uh W- what he's still been doing and what that can do for his chess game. Um, so yeah, obviously we've gone on for minutes because he's such a compelling figure, and it will be fascinating to see how how he performs. Uh, next up, Jan Nepomniachtchi, thirty one years of age, rated twenty seven sixty six, number seven in the world currently, and the cu- the country he's representing is FIDE because he can no longer represent Russia, which I shouldn't uh, really laugh about. Obviously, uh, what's what's going on in. Uh, Russia's attack against Ukraine is reprehensible and you know the whether or not players from Russia should be playing is you know I feel like it's far afield from previewing the candidates but certainly we've we've discussed it previously and will again on the podcast and Jan of course signed the letter uh, uh speaking out against the war um chess wise my fun fact is uh and he's another one I found it a little hard to find a fun fact because like everything's about his uh his video game Dota um, which has been discussed enough. But I did find an interview with uh, Maria Emolyanova, uh where he mentioned one of his first chess books was Alexander Alyekin's Best Games, and he devoured it, which, you know, those who've seen him play, not a, not a shocker. Uh, what do you think about Nepo, Robert? <sighs>
3: you know, he is one of the difficult
0: ones to assess because most people recall
3: his world championship match against Magnus, and then immediately cast him aside as somebody who's not worthy, which is ridiculously unfair to such a talented player like Jan Napamashi. He's been held up as perhaps, you know, the most talented player in his generation and Magnus Carlsen is there. So it's hard to say anybody is more talented and I really don't like diving into those arguments, but Jan is exceptional. He plays really quickly. So he puts pressure on you on the clock in addition to over the board And we'll see what kind of motivation he has because the prospects of facing Magnus, if he agrees to that world championship match, does that look like fun after you just suffered that defeat? Maybe you're hungry for revenge, but as it goes for, you know, his recent chess, I mean, he kind of just is hanging in there, right? He knows that the Candice is coming up ever since he lost the match. So it's hard to really take anything away from recent games because, Uh, as soon as he qualified for the match against Magnus by winning the previous candidates, which was very impressive, by the way. um, Maybe that is the biggest testament to his chess career and success. But also, before that, there wasn't really much in the way of top-level victories. So some may see it as an aberration, a fluke. I think that Jan Nepomneshi is ridiculously strong. Uh, I would be surprised if he won again. I think that the odds makers are unfairly <laughs> they're they're harsh. So yeah. he might be a, a good pickup if you're into sports gambling or in this case chess gambling. Uh, but yeah, I find it very unlikely. Though there is, I got a fun fact for you about Jan Nepomniachtchi is that if I'm not mistaken, Fabiano Caruana has never beaten him in a class.
0: Oh, really, did yeah. not know that fun fact. Wow, that that is surprising. Um, but yeah, I agree overall with your assessment. Again, Feingold recently really tapped to uh, liking his chances to win. I have to admit, uh, I'm I'm a bit more bearish. Um, you know, uh, Jakob has been outspoken about the fact that Nepo Uh, and he, he doesn't do as well in longer tournaments. Um, he may have benefited from the first candidates being split up. This one will not be split up. We got a 14 round grind, uh, coming up. So, um, one of the many things to watch. I mean, he does benefit from, um, you know, um, I believe it was, um, um, Rustam Kashumzhanov has spoken about how like the mere act of playing for the world championship just is like a huge turbo boost to anyone's chest strength because you get this team behind you, you get all this opening prep and you you level up basically your level of seriousness about the game. So that's not something to be discounted, but I just feel like he's a bit variable in terms of like, we don't know how motivated he is compared to some of these uh, young up and comers. Yeah. Um, I I think that's a very important point. Then Fabiano Caruana, who I'm I'm going to talk
3: about soon, he's made the same point that you don't know what it's like until you sit in the chair and you are facing Magnus Carlsen day after day after day with the months and months of preparation with all that hard work that goes on behind the scenes. So Jan undoubtedly is a stronger player for having played that match, but he also is squaring off against all these other strong players. And yeah, it's – you know, he – is for me middle of the pack. Like I could see it going either way for him. And as you said, the tournament being split up in 2020 slash 2021 was huge for him. He lost game seven, right? Yeah. The next team, Bashir Lagrove, defeated him, tied him in the standings and took over because of the head to head record. And then the tournament stopped. And that was huge for him because Jan can be a very streaky player. And if you're coming off a loss, you know, people like to talk about tilt that could lead to more losses, Determined stop. When it resumed, Jan caught fire. He ends up winning the event. And so it could have been a different storyline for sure had the event continued and gone 14 rounds straight.
0: Yeah it'll be interesting to see he's another one um so the the odds you alluded to and robert by the way um listeners will have already heard this but we're going to do a numerical segment with uh with chess by the numbers and i'll be sharing all the the betting markets uh after we're done our interview that'll be a separate segment but the odds you alluded to are six percent which it is kind of like it is shocking when you see it you're like six percent for the guy who won it last time but then when you look at everyone else it's not like you know No one else seems highly that overvalued to me personally. Um, So yeah, that's why betting is difficult. (laughs) Uh, Next up, uh, as the aforementioned Richard Rapport, 26 years of age, number eight in the world, rated 2764. And I have here in my notes that he represents Hungary. But as you alluded to, Robert, we're recording here on May 27th. And the news just broke that he apparently is transferring federations along with his wife, Giovanna Rapport, to Romania. So um, this will be old news by the time uh, this pod comes out, but did that surprise you, Robert? Um,
3: oh, that's a kind of a big question, and I guess you didn't expect this reaction. So I don't know Report personally, so I, I couldn't be surprised in either direction. But the way the chess world has gone, where top players transfer federations to you know, secure some lucrative offers, I think we're not very foreign to that here in the United States. So um, I'm not judging anybody for it. I already mentioned earlier that it's not exactly the most profitable game, chess. And so if you can find a partnership, a sponsorship, whatever it may be that suits you and your family's needs, I am not going to be one to judge. Do I think it's strange? Um, It's difficult to say because some people are very much in the olympic spirit that once you play for one olympic team you should never be able to play for another i don't think that chess follows uh you know fide tries to follow the olympic committee and all that stuff but i'm saying chess as an atmosphere as a profession doesn't exactly follow uh, for example professional football soccer right where um you have players from all over compete for teams from all sorts of Different countries' leagues, so and there's just much more money, right? There's a salary. So, without that in chess, where your income hinges on your performance, I don't at all judge or blame players for doing what they feel is right for themselves. Is it odd? Sure, you know, it's not something you see every day. But just because something's atypical doesn't mean that it's wrong. And I don't think we can hold a moral standard in this case. But I, I was interested more than anything i don't like to judge before i sort of get more facts and i don't know too much about report personally Uh, he seems to be a private individual uh, along with his wife and i respect that and i think as we're gonna talk about the chess he is an awesome chess player to watch i've always loved watching his games
0: yeah very creative player definitely excited to see him see him out there and yeah i think i think he's got decent chances and as for as for the transfer thing um you know, he's been outspoken in the past about um, feeling not that supported in terms of like his ability to compete at an elite level, his ability to uh, make a comfortable living. So if if transferring is what it takes, then then I'm I'm all for it. Uh, the fun fact I had before this news broke was that his dad, his dad said that he introduced rapport to chess as a child because he had trouble focusing at school, which kind of surprised me because, you know, classical chess does not, uh, you know, It requires focus, if nothing else. (laughs) But you can see his creativity, right? Yeah, he is an outside the box thinker. Uh, One of
3: my favorite games of his is—I don't want to misquote the year, so I'm going to go with 2016 against Levon Aronian, where he went made his move, Rook H1 check, just giving up his rook, and it was a winning tactic. But it was awesome. Like, I don't think that maybe more than you know a dozen players in the world would even think about that as a possibility. And he didn't just think about it, you know. He he intuited it, he you know calculated, it, and he won that game with the black pieces against Levon Aronian. And report like Rajabov, he dropped a lot of rating at some point. Right, he was young, he was 2750, 27.60, whatever the exact number was, and he was breaking into the top. And then his rating plummets. He goes to something like twenty six seventy five, which is obviously an amazing chess player. But we're talking about report here, right? We're not just talking about. A GM on the rise. We're talking about somebody who was uh, at the precipice, you know, about to break through to the top ten, get every invite you could ever ask for, and then I don't know what happened, and I don't want to, you know, you know suggest anything. I have no idea, right? I, I just don't know. But he always kept that playing style. Sometimes it was a little bit maybe too risky, and it can backfire but you see it time and time again. He is an extraordinary player. He's so creative and he is a joy to watch. So every time he's in a tournament, I'm watching because yeah. he is just electric.
0: Yeah. And the the fun fact that I shared came from an old chess base article and they had, they had a few other interesting nuggets in there. One he became grandmaster at an even younger age than his uh, compatriots, or at least former compatriots, Peter Laco and Yuda Polgar, who obviously are singular prodigies, some of the, you know, fastest developing prodigies in chess history. Um, and number two, in comparing his game to Laco, I believe it was one of his trainers, uh, I mean, to Polgar, said that with Polgar, um, the work came first and then came the talent. But with Rapport, it was the talent was just like off the charts, like uh, the which gets to what you're alluding to in his tremendous OTB creativity. And I'll, I'll have to to look up that Rook H1 move, Robert. I probably saw it at some point, but uh, I don't remember it off the top of my head. So I'm going to put a link to it in the, the show notes and check it out myself uh, when this interview is over. Um, next up, a certain gentleman by the name of Fabiano Caruana, 29 years of age, rated 2782, number four in the world, playing for the United States. Uh, fun fact. As a child, he had the same trainer as Grandmaster Robert Hess for a period, although I have another fun fact, but did want to get that in there. Shocking. Well, I didn't know that. Wow. Oh my gosh. This whole time, I never knew he had
3: the same coach as me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Your fellow New York native for a while there. But my actual fun fact is grew up listening to Metallica and Led Zeppelin, but more recently got into hip hop like Kendrick Lamar and Killer Priest. So Robert, um, I don't know if you guys were sharing living space when you guys were covering the World Championship together, but certainly spending a lot of time together. Was uh, was Fabiano bumping a lot of Killer Priest uh, at that time? You know, well, considering the early wake up time, we didn't really have
3: too much time to bump rap, but I know, you know, he's into rap. And uh, Fabiano is a fascinating guy who I know extremely well. I had the pleasure of being his second at the World Cup last year, which was a short lived experience with tons of bumps in the road. Uh, but I've known Fabiano well for many, many years. And so your fun facts don't surprise me. <laughs>
0: huh. well, but, it's, but it's interesting to hear that, that you were his second. I mean, uh, because obviously your day-to-day comprises a lot more uh, chess coverage. So uh, how did you view it when he asked you to do that? Were you like, this is a unique world experience or like, I want to get into being a second. Like, this is my new path. <laughs> it was the unique world experience
3: aspect, and um, it, it was fun. It was something that I thought that I was not going to be equipped for, and maybe based on its results, I, <laughs> I, I'm not equipped for it. Though I don't think it was really, uh, you know, kind of an opening fall. I think it was just happenstance. Uh, but either way, it was a great experience. I learned a ton, and it gave me insights firsthand into how top players prepare. Because I think that we all. Know, kind of fantasize what would that look like? What is that like? Do they just, you know, sit and press the space bar, which is a code for it, using the engine and just getting the next move? And it's much more complicated than that. There's uh, certainly a lot of practicing variations, not just looking at the top lines, but uh, working through all sorts of interest things that interest you, not necessarily things that just you see on screen. So, I obviously won't dive too much into. Uh, but what we did, and it was, again, a short experience. So I don't want to pretend like uh, I have any experience training the best players for long periods of time and help them become the players that they are. Uh, but I, of course, you know, when you work with somebody like that, and they trust you, uh, it's an honor. So I do not take that experience for granted.
0: Yeah, must, must have been amazing. Um, and let me ask you, Robert, I, I don't know Fabiano personally, of course, but for some reason, uh, Contra, what I was saying about Nepo, to me, I don't question Fabiano's motivation. I feel like he's been, like, I just have the feeling that he's, he's been preparing for this, gearing up for this, will be ready to go, really wants it. Um, as someone who's actually friendly with him, does, does that square with your impression? Oh, for sure. Right. The guy has
3: social media, but you don't see him posting yeah. on it. He could become a successful streamer. I mean, everyone loved his commentary oh, man. during the world so championship. Good. It, yeah. I mean, it was a blast covering with him. And, you know, I learned a lot just by hearing him talk about the games and everything and living with him for almost a month. Uh, so he is motivated by the fact that he loves chess and he is always trying to improve. Uh, he, Sorry, Fabi, in advance, but he's always watching the commentary that I'm doing because I get messages from him about oh, nice. <laughs> it. So, you know, not to put you on the spot, buddy, but uh, he, is, he loves the game. He truly loves the game. And so he doesn't need any sort of external motivation. Ever since he was a kid, he kind of lived and breathed chess, not in the way that he doesn't have interest. We just talked about his music and he loves movies. Uh, <laughs> so um, I think for Fabiano, there is no question about that. People can question his form in recent years, and maybe that's fair. I think that he'd be the first to admit that you know he's had some struggles, some bad tournaments. Of course, you mentioned Rusim Kazimjanov. That was very public that they no longer are working together, and I, I don't have insights into that. I'm not you know hiding anything, and if I had something to tell, I wouldn't say it because it's not polite and not correct, but I don't. So I don't know all the ins and outs. Of his training regimen, but I do know that he takes every event seriously. And also, I think he has silenced many of the critics because if we look at his recent blitz and rapid performances.
0: Yeah. That's a good not point. Not so
3: bad when you yeah. consider that his blitz rating is currently higher than Magnus Carlsen. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Just, just in a speaking of fun facts, just, just uh, amazing uh, the progress he's made. And obviously, I think that story was a uh, overblown to begin with. Now, Robert, I got to follow up on this one. The fact that he's texting you during tournaments, it doesn't surprise me. He's doing so during top line events, but something like the the I am not a GM. Is he texting you during that as well? <laughs> yeah. No. He uh, he really loves himself a good chess show and uh yeah he he is <laughs> yeah, for sure that's funny <laughs> sounds like it's a lot of text
3: <laughs> uh yeah you know uh, <laughs> not to again blow up his spot, but yeah fabi's always watching he's big brother
0: that that's great it must be a strange feeling i've wondered about that before with the top players because chess is such a insular small world that i do feel like you know they can't help but watch um a lot of these events but it would be a bit overwhelming for them to pop in the chat. So I've often wondered like, (laughs) how they handle those situations.
3: Yeah. I think for their own benefit, staying away from the chat often is I I don't even read the chat when I'm commentating. So I couldn't advise anybody to go in there and start chatting, but Hey, you know, if these candid players want to come in and talk in the chat, I will start reading their messages.
0: Okay. Excellent. All right. Next up, uh, Ali Reza Farouja, 18 years of age, rated 2793, number three in the world, was number two, uh, representing France, originally from Iran, of course. And my fun fact, Robert, is he started chess at the age of eight, which is the, the latest in the field, which is interesting because now it's like he's sort of the, the brightest prodigy, um, but, but started the latest. But obviously so much, such a fascinating uh, chess player, such a dynamic player. Uh, what do you think, Robert? <laughs> yeah, actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to
3: sort of merge him and Fabiano here for a second because uh, he's never beaten Fabiano. And, and this is going to segue into my thoughts about Ferrugia and his chances. But Fabiano has quite a good record against the field. Uh, so Fruja's never beaten him. Rajabov has never beaten him. And Duda has never beaten him in classical chess. He also has a winning record against Hikaru and I didn't look into the specifics, but I'm sure some of the games that they played were maybe when Fabiano was a bit younger because he is a few years younger than Hikaru. But still, that's that's very close. It's seven wins for Fabi, six for Hikaru. Um, so I believe the only players Fabiano has a losing record against is Dingley Wren, who, if I'm not mistaken, won three straight decisive games um, between the two, including at the candidates in 2020. But my favorite game between them, sorry, Fabiano was when Ding beat him in the uh, 2019 Sinkville cup. I want to say that was a really nice game where it looked like it was you know, a small edge and Ding was able to convert it, but okay. Now it's Ferrugia time because that's who you brought up. I think that Alariz just doesn't have the experience mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that he cannot win this tournament, uh, but you've never beaten Fabiano over the board. You haven't played all that many times and he gained a ton of rating. He is extraordinary. I love watching Ali Reza Frugia play chess. You tell me he's in the tournament, I'm watching. Because he has this fearlessness to him, this hunger. He is striving to be the world champion. But, and this is a pretty big but here, has he played 14 games in a row against 2750-plus competition? I don't think it's possible, given his recency uh as a top-level player. So he won the Grand Swiss. He did lose to Fabiano in the Grand Swiss, uh, but he won that tournament. But if you look at the opposition, it's not 2750 after 2750. And as somebody who's not in that rating caliber, who um, is lower rated than even the Grandmasters he was beating, that is me saying everything with all the respect in the world. He is beating fantastic players really strong grandmasters who may not have the rating of a top 15 player, but certainly can beat them on any given day. So can Ali Reza contend for 14 rounds in a row with both colors against the likes of Fabiano, Li Wren, and the rest of the bunch? That is a big question mark. And that's why I wouldn't put him as the favorite. I would put him behind dingley ren and fabiano caruana and alongside hikaru probably uh in that bunch report again a bit unclear for me on where he uh, sits in my favorites uh, in terms of rankings not i I don't really have personal preferences i try to be as neutral as possible as a commentator but come on we know you're rooting for fabi no (laughs) i I, even when fabiano played for the world championship against magnus carlson i really do not have a rooting interest because i think that would worsen my craft so okay um, we can talk about that later, but yeah, for for this event, I think that Ferugia he may be inexperienced, and then you can make the argument: well, there was a guy named Gary Kasparov who went in there and was uh, in his teenage years and just beating everybody, and that's true. Uh, but the level of competition this day and age, I mean, it's not even clear that. Well, first of all, Ferugia is lower rated than Dingley Ren, uh, but it's not clear that he's necessarily better than the players he's higher rated than. It's that close. At the top and without that experience uh, that we've been talking about, where whether it's playing a world championship match or playing the candidates and winning the candidates like both Carwana and Nepo have done, it is difficult for me to see him winning without having seen him win these top level events over the course of, you know, a couple of years.
0: Wow. Well, I appreciate your candor there. I I think I think you've convinced me. I mean, he wasn't I didn't have him ahead of Ding and. and Fabiano, to begin with, I'm. Um, you know, I'm. A, I don't consider myself such an expert prognosticator that I have a, a big difference from what the ratings models or betting markets would tell you in terms of how I assess people. But I do feel like you know, there's this. Um, obviously, his chess is electric. You love the storyline of this rapid ascension, so it is kind of easy to get pulled into the um, the narrative of just this. Young talent just exploding, you know, into into the the uber elite. But um, I think you raise some valid points. I mean, and there's also the question of like a common topic on uh, my friends at the the Chicken Chess podcast. What is he doing? Like, he's not playing these tournaments. The news just broke. He's not. It, I mean, they're they're now suggesting he may not even play the Olympiad. Which, okay, that's not necessarily going to give him the strongest competition in the world but uh he's just not competing that much uh among other issues so you, you definitely raise some valid points robert and if you don't mind he did just play in the grand Chesto tour in romania and his result was not particularly inspiring
3: so yeah um there you know he he was kind of in the middle of the pack it never felt like he was competing for first place and in the very last round he was playing against his new compatriot, Maxime Vashilagrov, and he lost with the white pieces. So uh, on one hand, you can make the argument that he's getting his practice in, he's just trying to uh, get himself situated for all important candidates, and he's hiding his preparation, all that stuff. But on the other hand, the results sometimes speak for themselves where you look at a performance and you're like, well, he beat Dominguez, but he lost to Jan with the white pieces, and he lost to Maxime with the white pieces four out of nine against that field he lost 10 rating points now people don't have to sit there and be like well he's the number two player in the world so he has to be the favorite I think people just like get into the moment a little bit too much and chess is played over a a long period of time right Dingley Wren isn't number two in the world by accident Uh, there's controversy there to be sure but Mm -hmm. Dingley Wren has been around for a very long time Fabiana Caruana you know Ever since his Singfield Cup days, and even before that, when he you know, started seven and zero and had a historic performance, he's been around. When he played Magnus Carlson, he was—if he beat him in any of those games—if he took the lead once, he would have overtaken Magnus by rating. So, rating is important, but it also has been just a purely upward trajectory for Ali Reza. and he gained a ton of points in the was the European Team Championship, I want to say, where he went eight out of nine, and that was awesome. Like I was watching the games, and like dang, he's not stopping. He's just, nobody can get in this path. But if you look through a lot of his ascension, it has come against players rated below 2,700. And as somebody who's below that rating myself, I have you know, nothing but good things to say about these players in terms of their chess ability, but it's just a different level. It's a totally different beast than playing against 2,750s game after game. And you have no choice in the candidates. You don't get to float down to the 2680 who's overperforming. Uh, we mentioned Grigory O'Parin, who in the uh, Grand Swiss almost qualified for the candidates, right? And last time was Kirill Alexenko. And that's possible because these are great players, but it's just totally different when you are playing against Duda and then Rajabov and then Nepo and then Karwana, then Nakamura, then Li Ren. And sorry, I, I always miss somebody in there, but the point is it's just a different level of competition and these players have been around for a while. And so whether or not Alireza can handle it is something that will unfold before our eyes in Madrid.
0: Uh, getting me excited again, Robert. Yeah, I can't wait to actually see it unfold. But, but yeah, I think... Uh... You're pumping the brakes. Might, might be warranted, or we may need to go back and erase this, uh, this segment uh, You know, two months from now. We'll see. Um, last but not least, definitely not least, uh, Ding Liren, 29 years of age, rated 2806, uh, from China, of course, number two in the world. And here's a fun, fun fact. He told Sagar Shah of Chess Base India in 2017 when he won $60,000 for second place in the World Cup. He said he always gives his prize money to his mother. Who's sweeter than Ding Liren? so Ding Ren is an extremely nice
3: guy and that is an adorable fun fact that i didn't know so really thank you for uh sharing that
0: yeah what can what can i say it's hard to root against him when you read that
3: <laughs> i you know i just was saying how i don't root for anybody but when you say that i mean how could i not root for Ding Ren?
0: yeah and obviously a beast over the board i mean uh, again i don't feel particularly original here but i do uh tap him as a uh, slightly the most likely to win it um I don't know if you would actually. I don't know if you're actually going to make a prediction, Robert. But more generally, what could you say about uh, Ding's game?
3: The guy's an absolute monster, and he is uh, multifaceted. He's not just one style or the other. I mean, none of these players are. You don't get to that rating by just playing attacking chess or positional chess. I think we like to lump people in the categories, but when you're that good, you may have preferences, but you're able to be versatile. So. Oh, Dingley Ren, Dingley Ren. Okay, how do I feel about Dingley Ren? I think he's a great individual. I think he was put in a tough spot. Uh, I can't talk about the candidates without you know talking about how he qualified, um, which was as the rating spot, and he didn't need the rating, so that's why I'm more okay with it than I would have been. Like he didn't go into these tournaments to win rating points. He could have lost 15 rating points or 20, I don't know how many. You know,
0: for, for context, we should probably uh, ex- explain what you're referring to, although I know, of course, um, I can or you can. It's up to sure, you. I got you. Um So Sergei Karyakin was
3: uh, replaced in the field based on his stance, his pro-Russia invasion stance and just many of the things that I certainly do not agree with uh, that he said and were – yeah, okay, I can yeah, <laughs> hold rep- my tongue, but reprehensible. reprehensible I'll say. That, that's <laughs> a good good word for it. Yeah. Um, so there was a replacement by rating, and you there was a requirement to play 30 rated games. And Dingley Ren had only played four. So within a month span, he played 28 rated games. So he even had a surplus of two. But the tournaments were all in China. They were all organized last second. Uh, they included some familiar faces, uh, you know, repeat customers, if you will. Uh, but because he didn't need to gain rating points, he just needed to play games, that is why I have less of an issue with it. Now, the optics are horrible. Yeah. Uh, the other players were just drawing all their games. They were trying. I mean, unless... There's this huge conspiracy out there that every single game was manipulated and you know they created draws in advance. It seems like the games were played. The games just happened to be draws. That's odd, statistically speaking, but it apparently happened. And Ding Liren beat up on a bunch of these guys and gained some rating points, like 10 or 8 or whatever it ended up being. So it's odd. I, I Nobody likes the look of that. Nobody likes internal organization of like events where the incentives are misaligned you have yeah. people who are playing ding just so he can get the number of games and do they want to win as chess players uh yeah you want to beat dingley Ren. that's the number two rated player in the world from a perspective you want that guy to be in the candidates are you supposed to beat him <sighs> who knows right that's one of those things that make it a bit shady even if i don't think that ding did anything wrong and i'm not really one for conspiracy theories so um going back to the over the board stuff ding where is he right what is his level what has his preparation been like he probably thought he wasn't going to play in the candidates is he just now getting ready with his openings he's looked darn good in the champions chess tour he looked good in those over the board games um you know will he have the stamina will he have a team ready to go on out there and help him prepare each and every day for many, many hours for these other players in the field. He's been here before, right? He was in the last candidate. So this is not new to him. Unlike Faruja, unlike Duda, this isn't his first rodeo. And in 2020, he got off to a terrible start. He lost his first two games. Now, he had to go through all sorts of uh, loops and obstacles just to get to Russia to play. And I mean, it was a nightmare situation for most of the players. So I, I don't know if we can give him... He traveled farther, so I guess we could give him um, more of the benefit of the doubt in terms of that experience being so trying that it impacted his play. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. Dingley Ren and his candidates before that. I, I don't remember him really fighting for first either. So, yeah, he, he's kind of the favorite. I, I would – probably, and I think a lot of people are giving Fabiano the slight nod ahead of Dingley Wren, but Dingli Wren, as I mentioned earlier, has a winning record against Fabiano. He has this really nice victory from the 2019 Singful Cup. He beat him in uh, from the white side to a position where Fabiano sacrificed a couple of pawns. I, I don't really remember the ins and outs of that game, but that was in the round three, I want to say, of the candidates. And then also the second half of the candidates, Dingli Ren. Became the monster that we know he's capable of being. Yeah, exactly. And he won that last round game against Jan, who had nothing to play for, but nobody really enjoys losing. And um, so yeah, I think that Dingley Wren has a lot of question marks. Just, you know, how will the conversation impact him, if at all? Like will the fact that he's there under these circumstances of internal tournaments that didn't exist until they were necessary. Will you know, people be talking about that? Can he just drown that out? We know that in sports, players are always drowning out the noise. You shoot free throws, there are uh, you know th- tens of thousands of angry fans yelling at you to miss, and you just have to ignore them and shoot your shot. So, yeah, Ding is fantastic. I love his style of play. He's a great mix of aggressive, and when he wants to be, and tame and can be a boa constrictor where he's like, you are, if you wanna play for a win, if you wanna do something special, that's on you. But I'm just going to optimize my piece placement and you're gonna to have to deal with it. And that's no fun to face. And so I think that uh, from a stylistic standpoint, he matches up with everybody in the field. I, I can't think of a single player that he should be scared of. And if I'm not mistaken, actually, the only person he hasn't beaten in this field in classical chess. Uh, Well, he only played Faruja twice, and they drew their games, but the only person besides Faruja with a lack of games is Hikaru Nakamura. Hmm. He has lost one game to him, drawn a handful, and then he has never beaten Hikaru. So that's just an interesting thing to note, but he doesn't also have that many games against the other players in the field. Coming from China, maybe not always participating in the same events as them. I would have thought that some of these players have like, three dozen games against each other or whatever. He just seems to have 10 or fewer against everyone else in the field.
0: Yeah. You you raise a lot of good points about ding. I I guess I just tend to focus on the sort of, you know, well-known positive aspects of his game of which there are many, but there are more question marks than, than it's, I think I have a tendency to discount them not to mention, you know, we're recording this here on May 27th, you know, please let there be no COVID drama, but if there's going to be any visa or getting out of one's country issues, you know, of all the places, China, of course, would seem to be the, the most likely. So let's just, you know, hope that there's no news in that regard and that he can get there and compete above all else. Yeah, that would be an absolute
3: shame if at this late stage, he wasn't able to uh, participate, but we've seen that in the qualification cycle, right? Dimitri Draken, who had a really good shot of making it, was in that group supposed to be in the group, A, with Hikaru Nakamura and Levon Aronian, all of whom had great results to that point, and then he didn't play it. I, I don't know the reasons why. I don't want to speculate, uh, but this is you know, not a novel thing if he were not able to travel. I think he will be. I'm hoping so for sure. And Ding, like I said, along with Fabiano Caruana, I think he probably has to be your odds-on favorite, but I'm just – sitting here trying to wrap my head around the lack of play in the last couple of years uh there's got to be some rustiness there um you're going toe to toe with all the best players in the world on a daily basis and that's not easy ever but it must be even more difficult when you're you've taken a little bit of a sabbatical not by personal choice but by worldly circumstance and i'm curious to see how that impacts him but yeah. Ding Liren is awesome. What a fantastic player! I can name so many games, just you know, drop them, and maybe I can tell you later. And you can link to some of my favorites. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, Ding is, I think, he's somehow lesser known, right? Like, the guy's yeah. number two in the world, and he might be the least known player in the field.
0: Well, I do feel like grandmasters like yourself talk about him in like hush tones, you know, even Magnus, like, he clearly has the respect of, of Magnus, and you know, I'm uh, again, I've been talking on the podcast so much with guests about like, will he or won't he with Magnus? That I'm going to set that aside for this particular episode. But I will say, I do think it would be interesting. Will he or won't he with, with Ding in particular? Because uh, he clearly respects him and it's not someone he's necessarily, he hasn't played him in a world championship before. i Some it. of the other top players. What's up? I'll bite. Just, re- just right, for Ding. Go, go.
3: I can't get into Magnus's mind because, you know, I don't know what it is, but I Ding Liren is a worthy challenger. Yes. And I won't necessarily say that about everybody else based on what we've seen historically between Magnus and them. And just, you know, even if somebody beats Magnus in a match, I'm often just going to say, yeah, whatever is one match. Magnus is still the best player, right? I right. Mean, he's so much higher rate than everybody else and dominates every tournament that they play in. But Ding is a fascinating, fascinating player. And he, you know, he's gone toe to toe with Magnus. He beat him in that sinkful cup tiebreaker, which everyone talked about. Um, Magnus, Of course, still has the upper hand, but it would be a cool matchup and one that I would definitely, you know, as a commentator, as a fan of chess, would be happy to see just like many of the others.
0: Yeah. And again, not to derail too much into, um, amateur tea leaf reading on my part, but it does seem like Magnus relishes a challenge and he does appreciate that thing could be a challenge. So, um, you know, one of the many things that may unfold over the next, uh, the next couple months. Now, Robert, we've done an hour of gold on the candidates. I appreciate it, but uh, I want to hit a couple other topics before we let you get on with your busy life. You ready? Let's go. All right. I appreciate it. So number one, uh, we've talked about it a few times already. I'm not a GM. As we record, uh, I've mentioned many times, it's basically my favorite chess.com event. Something about, even though like people like Levy and um, and Eric Rosen, amazing players, like, you know, uh, so strong, in, and especially in the faster time controls, there's still an element of humanity when I watch them play that I don't necessarily feel when I watch the top 10 players. Do you, do you agree with that? And do you have any theories on, on why that is, Robert, if you agree with it? I will maybe
3: not challenge it at all, but I'll contextualize it. That's a good way of framing it, I think, is with how I like to commentate and what I think makes a good commentator is Excellent. a commentator who is willing to be wrong. That's like Mm -hmm. the number one characteristic. And I've worked with so many commentators at this point. If you're just reading the engine, that's pretend, right? Magnus Carlsen is the best player in the world. He misses moves all the time. So why should we pretend like we can see everything? No, we should have fun going down variations. Now, uh, if we show why things are right, that is informative, that's instructive. But if we show why things are wrong, that hits with most of the people who are watching. Because let's be honest, most people that watch chess are not grandmasters are not title players. They love chess. They're aficionados and they want to improve in some way. If I can leave somebody with a nugget of information, I feel like that's a successful viewing experience. So as it pertains to the, I'm not a GM speech championship, you obviously have more mistakes because we're dealing with players who, uh, well, they make more mistakes, right? It's uh, a lower rated than grandmaster, lower title, but still an exceptional player. So I love that we can showcase this talent There also are more incorrect moves played, and those are going to be moves that align with the viewing experience. So I think it's kind of the best of all worlds. Fantastic chess, uh, mistakes, but also just people who are like enjoying the experience and are not necessarily hyper competitive all the time about playing. So it kind of is the perfect storm.
0: Yeah, I couldn't believe that Levy was streaming his match yesterday. But on the other hand, like it's not big prize money, you know, like his his livelihood is his Twitch streaming and his YouTube channel. So as you think about it, it makes sense. But but nonetheless, like I, I feel like it it gets it so many people end up watching that I was still a bit surprised. But it was compelling as always.
3: He said he actually plays better on stream. So after his first match, uh he said that he was gonna stream the second because if he's just sitting and playing and not multitasking, he can get a little distracted or bored which to some may seem
0: counterintuitive but that's uh his thing. Okay. And as the announcer of something like that Robert did you approach it any differently the the I guess you might call it I mean obviously it's more casual than like you flying to Madrid and getting dressed up and all that stuff but how how is your approach differently as a commentator for uh the online non-elite events? I th- try at least to commentate every event
3: the same way whether i'm commentating for 20 or twenty thousand people uh, i want to you know there's this balance of edutainment if you will but i always am skewed towards the educational aspects and less trying to entertain randomly uh, it's actually why i don't stream that often because i um one don't always find it very fulfilling and two i, I just prefer to focus on like helping people improve and you can do that while streaming of course but i feel like also you have to fill the gaps and uh, do things that you might not ordinarily do so as it goes for the i'm not gm speeches championship yeah i i just try to be myself i try to get into the games i think that um what's really important for me and my perspective of chess is i know how strong players like levy players like eric are i know what they've gone through to get to the point that they're international masters. And there is they take a lot of flack. In addition to all the praise they get for being amazing content creators, and as somebody who commentates with non-GMs regularly, I know that people will just be dismissive, will be harsh, will say like, oh, they're weak, even though the players are way stronger than everybody who's saying that, right? Um, So I do take that into account, at least subconsciously. And I want to make sure that the audience the fans they understand just how good these players are even if they're not uh, holding the t- highest title in the world even though they're not playing in the candidates i mean i'm not playing the candidates right so if you want to insult them for not being good enough insult me right like I'm, yeah. I'm okay with that i can own that but i think when there's a, a tiered system a title system that i think that uh, people do latch on unfortunately to the notion that some people just aren't that good because they aren't Twenty seven eighty, and um, I do keep that in mind specifically for events that don't feature the hikaris of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. To me, it's like laughable. I mean, just because I mean, I'm bad enough, I guess you could say, to appreciate how good like Levy and and um, Eric and the rest of the competitors are. In I'm not a GM, um, and and I mean. It shouldn't even matter. But by the way, they basically have GM level ratings. And when it comes to speed chess, Um, I mean, and jumping through the hoops to get the GM title, as has been discussed many times on this podcast, like that's its own thing. You know, like that's that's a singular thing. It's a tremendous achievement. I think it's very admirable to to pursue that. But, you know, someone like my friend, Greg Shahadi, just at some point decided, like, the juice is not worth the squeeze. And that's not to say that he automatically would have made it or that he necessarily is good enough but it is like, it's it's a separate thing from whatever it is that, you, that you're watching online and certainly people shouldn't judge.
3: Yeah, and I like the way you put it, right? There's no guarantee that anybody, no matter how good they are, no uh, matter how many, you know, what the rating currently is or what it was, there's no guarantees that anyone ever gets the title. In fact, um, this is something I talk about whenever I'm asked about a young talent. I'm like, I'm not putting any ex- expectations on these people yeah. because just because someone's, you know, ten years old and rated two thousand. I'm just throwing out random numbers. It uh, doesn't mean that they have to be anything. Chess should be fun. Chess yeah. is not something that people need to kind of just get stuck thinking, "Am I going to be this rating? Will be that?" And I get it's easy for me to say because I already am a grandmaster. Um, but I'm also not a particularly competitive person, which I think may shock a lot of people. Um, you know, I, I'm not playing chess because I want to crush everybody and that could be in part one of the many reasons why I'm not better than I am, because I do think some element of wanting to crush the competition can be good for athletic competition. Um, even if not always healthy (laughs) outside of it, but, um, yeah, I, I think that someone like Levy, someone like Eric, uh, Greg Lawrence, the rest of that whole field, some of them will become grandmasters. Others won't, others won't try. And, that's not for me to sit here and judge because what does the grandmaster title get you? It gets you the highest title in the world. And if that's something you're pursuing, fantastic. I of course cherish my grandmaster title. I do not take it for granted. I worked very hard for it, uh, but I don't think that it necessarily means anything from a worldly perspective. And so that people who are not a GM should feel badly about themselves, especially if you are doing other things and creating amazing content that millions of people watch so uh yeah i I said earlier i don't read the chat and i don't read it for a reason because you know even the random insults that are hurled are just not worth and i do appreciate the comments i you know people do extend those uh but you know just to see people receive unnecessary flack and just negative negativity it's not something that i think is beneficial for
0: anybody before you were getting me fired up now you're depressing me Robert so we got we got to change the subject. Um, <laughs> let's do so it. so you mentioned uh you're you're not as competitive as some players and I know that you're semi retired but but reviewing your FIDE Grand Swiss 2019 Robert you beat Lenderman you beat Shanklin uh what was in the water uh how did how did you manage such a performance and and will we see another at any point in the next uh, year or two? Uh okay so now we're on, on to my playing
3: let's see. Yes. Not gonna make any promises. Uh, the Grand Swiss, both times I played in it. Oh, no, wait, the year before maybe wasn't the Grand Swiss. It was just the Isle of Man uh, tournament. Uh, but in that one, I had the once-in-a-lifetime honor of playing and drawing Vichy on end. And you know, that's an experience that, uh, you know. speaking of cherished memories, that's something that I will hold on to for life. And uh, means a lot to me because I have, I mean, what can you say about Vichy that hasn't already been said? But um, Yeah, the 2019 edition in Isle of Man. I had zero expectations, and I started kind of badly. I drew my first game as Ruslan Panamar, which the result isn't bad, but I was worse the entire game because, well, I don't really know openings. And then I lost two games in a row. And then it's like, all right, well, I'm just here. Hopefully I don't do badly uh, for the rest of the tournament. But it's not competitive for me in the sense that I wanted to go and beat anyone in particular. I'm competitive with myself. I love learning. And for me, there's nothing that replicates the experience of playing a long chess game where you're seeking the truth in the position. So, in fact, of those last two events that I played in, perhaps my most memorable game was my loss in the last round against uh, Krishnan Sasikiran, a very strong Indian Grandmaster. I had the black pieces and I was just calculating this pawn break for like six consecutive moves and i just remember that experience like no nah, this first time eh, maybe it's okay the second time mm, doesn't look as good third time eh. fourth move okay yeah maybe fifth time okay it's kind of getting urgent sixth time now or never and i didn't play it and i find that experience satisfying i lost that game so you think why why is that your memory like you you mentioned i beat sam i beat alex lenderman those were fantastic results, and you know I, I enjoyed that. <laughs> Who doesn't love winning a good game of chess? But I do think that game sticks to me the most, and it's a game I lost, and I don't reflect negatively on it. Like I really enjoyed that experience, and it helps that I don't play for prize funds, and you know I have my job as a commentator and I coach and all that stuff. Uh, but I think I was always kind of that way because um, playing for you know, that competitive like nature of beating everybody else, that must be exhausting. I don't know because I I, I don't live that way and um, I'm not hardwired that way maybe, but it's something that I understand. I live as a commentator. I cover everybody. Some of these people are the most competitive people ever and it's not just chess, right? You just, you know, you sit and roll a dice. Like I can get a four. I can do that, right? It's like, all right, well, I don't really care. Uh, But (laughs) um, yeah, no, I, I love Those events, I think that it's from a chess player standpoint. I don't like round robins. I might have Mm -hmm. we might have talked about this in our previous podcast. I think it's a boring format, Uh, it's just not fun to see the same people play over and over again. Uh, there is some maybe selfishness in this that I wish that I could play in tournaments where I could potentially play Magnus if I do well, or if I just you know, the. Middle of the field, and I play him in the first round, whatever it may be. But having the opportunity to play someone like Magnus or Vichy is something that is extremely motivating for me. And I think a lot of grandmasters, whereas trying to squeeze out a win to secure a small prize, most grandmasters are not making their living playing chess, at least not that I'm aware of, because I I don't know how that's possible. Right. Even 2650 GMs, I, I can't imagine that there is a sustainable income. Made through those means. So the more events, and that's why I love the Rapid Chess Championship that I mostly commentate on chess.com, but I've had the uh, luxury, the privilege of playing in a, in a bunch of them. And I get to play at 10 minutes each game against the likes of uh, Jordan von Forrest or an Andre Yesapenko. And sometimes you win those games, and that's really cool. Like it just proves to you if, that you can do it, but also just the experience is awesome. I mean, what player doesn't want to play people better than them?
0: Robert, I love the growth mindset as you describe uh, your approach to, uh, to OTB chess. Um, has it even in your younger, I, I would say more competitive, but it sounds like maybe competitive is not the right word, but ha- have you always felt that way? Yeah. I think that
3: anytime I was really upset about a game, it wasn't necessarily because of the result. And when I coach people, especially kids, I never asked them, how did you do? I asked them, how did you play? Mm-hmm. Because if you say, how did you do it's like I won. And then, like they don't make that switch necessarily to, okay, I won, but I didn't do this or I missed this. Like maybe I should have seen that or I was considering this. They didn't get in their head about the result. And so for me, the process is far more important. I'm always into the why of things. I studied history in college, right? Yeah. I, uh, why things are the way they are, you know, how we got to a point. Those are important questions philosophically and also specifically to the game of chess. So when I was younger, I think we always like to think well of our younger selves, but I, I don't really remember like that drive to do chess all the time. In fact, when I was in like late elementary school or early middle school, I told my parents, like, I'm not doing chess all my weekend. I'm going to go sleep over at my friend's place. You know, I don't know if I really had the uh, the power to make that decision solo, but right. uh, I, it happened. Right? I was like, okay, I'm not just going to play at the Marshall. Uh, every single day of the weekend, every weekend or have lessons. Like I I, I have other interests to this day. So yeah, I, I think that while I love chess, it being the sole focus of my life um, wouldn't be good for me. And I also think that I just don't have that urgency that others
0: do. Cool. Well, I think... That- Again, I think it's admirable, and it's it's nice to hear that you did accumulate some experiences such as drawing uh So when you had that OTB encounter, circling back to it, Robert, did, did you get a story to go with it? Any post-mortem? I mean, you guys have probably at least uh, exchanged pleasantries before, but what was it like to, to actually play Vishy?
3: Yeah, it's a lot different. <laughs> <laughs> um, I first met Vishy in person, I want to say 2012, maybe. We taught a camp together in L.A., and so uh, we're both instructors and, you know, at dinners and stuff like that. Um, and we've known each other over the years. We have a very friendly relationship. You know, it's not a close relationship. We just, you know, don't know each other that well personally. Uh, but uh, I would like to think mutual respect. Obviously, I have a ton of respect for him, and we've commentated mm-hmm. together. But playing him um, was awesome. I mean, I went into that game. I walked to the tournament hall, and I sat down, and I didn't know what I was going to play. So I played the French mm-hmm. defense even though (laughs) I am very uh, anti French defense um, as I joke about or half joke about during commentary all the time. Uh, But I figured it was the opening. He doesn't play against that much. So why not? Let's try it. Right. Like, you know, Vichy, according to everybody knows everything. So why not play the French defense and see what happens? And it, you know, probably caught him by surprise to some extent. And I played a, I think a very good game where I was up a pawn in the end game. And, yeah, we had a you know, post-mortem briefly just talked about the position and things like that. But, yeah, we just went on our way uh, afterwards and continued with the tournament. But, yeah, I, I definitely uh, that that memory is imprinted in my mind. And,
0: yeah, it was awesome. How well do you know the French defense? Do you feel like it's one of your like better black against E4 openings or were you just like whatever you won? <laughs> It was a, whatever. Yeah. No, it's uh, not something that I played. I play it
3: online, you know, occasionally on blitz or whatever, but I have not studied the French. I don't promote the French defense. Uh, if you have French defense listeners here, I'm both sorry. And not sorry. Uh, you're still welcome. You know, every single thing I do, but, uh, yeah, it's just, I that light square Bishop Man, come on.
0: <laughs> yeah. that's not better. my favorite. I don't like to play against it either though. So I, I have to admit that, but, uh, but yeah, um, all right, Robert, um, we're almost done here. Um, this, this has been awesome. Uh, no surprise there. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about the Global Chess Championship, the online event uh, from chess.com, which of course will be culminating with a World Championship IRL. Um, so do you know yet? Will you be commentating that? Are you going to play in the Global chess Championship? It will be in the championship will be in Toronto, October 29th. Right, so I'm trying to think how much I'm allowed to tell you, or
3: if I just leave this <laughs> hanging so everybody can wonder. Um, I guess I'll just say whenever there are big chess events, and in particular, bigchess.com events, you can likely expect me to be covering it. Um, okay, whether or not I'll play, uh, that remains to be seen. But it's it, it seems awesome. I mean, you know, it's an opportunity for anyone to get involved. Um, obviously, if you are not a highly rated grandmaster, the chances of you making it very far are not super high, but I think as I was mentioning before, like the opportunity to play against title players, if you're untitled, or if you are, let's say a, um, a feeding master playing against grandmasters, that's always fun. That's always a good experience. And, um, the event itself will be great. I'm really looking forward to it. I need to quickly see what's out public and <laughs> what, <laughs> what okay, I can well- and can't say. Okay. No, I, I see, um, it's already public so yeah there will be qualifiers and then there will also be 32 um, invitees. so the knockout will be 64 players and um, you know you'll expect many of the invitees they won't come as a surprise just top players, uh, legends of the game, uh, young talents and then others will work their way through and qualify. So I think having an in-person final is very exciting, especially for rapid chess. Uh, you know, classical chess is always in person. Playing check classical chess online, some people do it. I definitely can't. Uh staring at the screen for that long and trying to concentrate is you know immensely difficult for me. But I think the live final will be really something that people will have a good time at and good time watching because um while we see players duke it out online all the time, and that still is exciting. Like I love rapid chess. I love commentating rapid chess, but that in-person element, I mean, Ben, you know, you've played in many, many chess tournaments. There's something there. There's like a yeah. certain magic and uh, an aura there that is just, you know, you, you just, you're there and there's really no other way to describe it than experiencing it. Right. Where like you know, the intensity of the moment, you could feel the players, even though they're just sitting in their chairs, you can just feel them stressing and, you know, maybe squirming, excited. So the the Global Championship, uh, you know, by the end of it, will feature, I'm sure, uh, the who's who of chess, and it will take place in person. So uh, that's just another exciting event to add, and the prize fund is huge, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. What you- I forgot I what the first place prize is. No, I, I see here $200,000. Second place, $100,000. Yeah, That's uh, something to get excited about and injecting a lot of money into the chess community.
0: Yeah, and this is uh, OTB with a chess set, not like Battleship style where they bring their laptops, right? Because I think there's merit to both formats, but I believe there's an actual chess set involved here. Is that right? If if I am not mistaken, the finals, uh, the top eight, when they meet in person, will be with a physical chess
3: board. And, um, you know, it's I think what the chess players themselves, I mean, they like grabbing the pieces. Of course, uh, playing online is good and fun, but with, especially with increment. Like, I, I think blitz chess, when you're like flagging people, that's chaotic over the board. But when you have increment, you know you're used to playing with a, a board and with the clock. So, yeah, I'm I'm happy about that, and I'm just happy about the event because um, it's really a lot of money and the chess world. Uh, you know, they, I think they eat up big events and. Whether it's the World Championship candidates or an event like this, I think it's a really exciting time to be a chess fan. As much as people say, oh, the boom is over, you know, not every single person will remain in chess. But I think a lot of people either came back to it or came to the game and are here to stay.
0: Well said. Yeah. And of course, if uh, listeners get verified, pay their $15 or or, or whatever it is, you can try your luck against these monsters. Um, so Robert, last topic you've mentioned previously in our conversation, you're an avid reader, lots of interests outside of chess. So I'm um, just curious, like w- what informs your approach to, to your craft commentating? Like, I know you're a sports fan as well. So like, uh, is that something you're still working on? And if so, how do you work on it? Something I am always working on and will always be
3: working on because uh, you, Getting complacent—that's not good. Uh, Perfect is the enemy of the good, as the saying goes. So there is that. But I am somewhat of a wannabe perfectionist. Hmm. I I sometimes slack on that uh, aspiration, but I I do hold myself to an extremely high standard. And um, you know, if I make a mistake—not a chess mistake—that's fine. But if I sometimes slip up with my words or I stumble, it's not ideal. But at the same time, I think it needs to be understood that as a chess commentator, we are talking nonstop because there's always something to talk about that pertains to the game. I love basketball. I've watched all these playoff games. Not much of games
0: as we were saying earlier, but um,
3: you know, uh, it's not like you can predict once Steph Curry hits a three, you can't predict what Luka Doncic is going to do on the other end. Like you can't map it out. You know that they're going to try to score But you can't say, here is the opening that was played. Here is their history in their eight previous games. This is the first time this opening was chosen. Here's how this opening uh, usually goes with six different sub-variations, and then you go to a different game and you come back. All right, here's what's happened since we last left off. Here's my assessment of the position. We have the eval bar off the side. And by the way, we don't look at moves. At least I don't look at moves uh, when I'm commentating. I think that... uh, you know, I've said this now numerous times being wrong is a good thing or like the, uh, accepting the possibility of being wrong is a good thing. You don't want to always be wrong. Then you're probably not a very good commentator, but, um, so I I have the evil bar off the side because I have no choice (laughs) in that matter. Uh, but I, the moves are off. So, um, yeah, I think that being able to map out everything means that you're talking a lot and, uh, that can be, super exhausting uh, something that people don't know for instance from the world championship is i had really bad bronchitis oh wow to the really? point where i was holding in my coughs that i like had muscle strains in my chest and i had to go to urgent care Jeez. Uh, yeah so it takes a lot out of you fabiano even was saying he was like just wiped every single time this is more exhausting than playing i don't know wow uh, if he uh, would swear on that, but he, you know, those words were uttered out of his mouth and yeah, I was like holding in my cough. So I, of course I was getting COVID tested. I'm you know, very um, uh, conscious about that. And of course want to be respectful to the people I was working with and it was just bad bronchitis, but I would like sort of have a, a tell with the producers and they would either focus on Fabiano and Danny or, you know, take us off screen altogether and then they would mute my mic and I would go upstairs. Stairs where we were, and I would cough. Jeez, and, and I would, like they would talk for a couple minutes, and then I would just join back and be like, "You know, Danny, I agree with what you and five are talking <laughs> about, but whatever." So, uh, I do take it very seriously, and I don't want to miss a moment, and I try to bring energy at all times. And it's not, I'm not injecting energy just for the sake of it. Like I love chess. Yeah. Like when Danny and I commentate together, and he's these days my most frequent commentator that I work with. Like we both love chess. And his passion for chess is, I mean, probably unrivaled. That guy is like a historian. He's obviously a top level player, and he is an amazing instructor. But you can just feel like his passion oozing out of him every time. And I'm maybe uh, I'll give him the nod in terms of being a little bit more passionate or like you know in in love, obsessed, whatever you want to call it, with the game. But I also love teaching chess to people, and so when we commentate together, I think it's just like. You know, just uh, the the whole is better than the sum of its parts almost where we just both authentically love the game. And so I mentioned the willingness to be wrong, but also just a true love for the game. Those are maybe the most important aspects of being a commentator because people latch on to your enthusiasm. That's what I found. Whereas, you know, if it's your true self, if you're authentic in your appreciation for the position. And something that I really mean is that every position is interesting to me. There are times, of course, where you know it's an endgame that you've already looked at for 20 minutes and you're sitting and waiting, which is why classical chess can be a bit tough to commentate on. But I find every position to be interesting for the most part because there's something different every time. If they're making their little Berlin draw, well, okay, that's not interesting because we've seen that one there. The players, they love to, to do that just to make their quick draw. But by and large, every single game of chess is unique. And so trying to decipher the differences in the position that's really fun for me and yeah you can call me nerdy sure i'll I'll take that it's a compliment these days i know that queen's gambit came out yeah nerdy's cool get with the times (laughs) yeah get with the times i read a lot i commentate chess for a living i like trivia and you know all sorts of other games and crosswords and things like that so i own it i'm (laughs) fine with it i know who i am um but at the end of the day you can't spell chess without Hess. so uh you know i'm gonna keep on going
0: Excellent, yeah, and shout out to Danya. He does do an amazing job. Uh, just uh, fun to watch whatever whatever aspect he's uh, he's covering, chess. Um, all right, last thing, Robert. You, you last time I shook you down for um for chess book recommendations. One of them in reviewing our prior interview, it turns out one of them was my system. I won't hold that against you, but I know that you're reading more uh, commonly outside of chess. So you have any uh, more general book recommendations for our listeners? Thankfully, you asked me a non-chess book because before <laughs> I'll, I'll you know out myself here,
3: before we started recording, I told you I've read like three chess books in my life. So right. I promote the study of chess and I want everybody to improve the way that's best for them and for a lot of people that's reading. I just have not read chess books myself. So uh, books outside of chess that, uh, that I've enjoyed, well, um, I'm about to start, well, I don't want to like you know, advertise you know, random books, but, uh, I have like an eclectic taste. I do like historical fiction a lot. I'm always in the middle of three books. So I'm reading, uh, you know, slowly reading this really long biography on Frederick Douglass. Um, I have a world war II book I'm reading. I just read this book, Clara and the sun, which is like sci-fi dystopian. Um, I, I read thumbs I read, up or thumbs down for Clara and the sun. Thumbs up. Okay, yeah, thumbs up uh, for sure. And I'm mean, I'm in a book club, so again, I'm i you know I'm a nerd. I, yeah. I own it. You know I'm happy with it. Uh, but I um, I read a lot. So when I'm not playing chess and I'm not hanging out with my friends or whatever, I'm often just reading and enjoying that. And you know I have, a l- and sports obviously, uh, but I, I have a lot of interests. And it's great that chess is blowing up because now you get to meet even more people outside of the chess world who like chess. So that has like expanded my horizons and I would say a lot of people's horizons.
0: Yeah, I know you've been with Danny to like the Sloan Sports Conference and stuff like that. What is uh, your your biggest celebrity that you've met through chess? Oh gosh, well, I'm like a, a private person. Like I don't, the people I've coached,
3: I don't coach them on stream. So, right. um, you know, via PogChamps, some of, some of the very biggest streamers that I've coached, I guess, you know, everyone knows I coached uh, the streamer Ludwig uh who is now one of the biggest streamers on YouTube. Um but uh, who is the Yeah, I'm not gonna name drop. It's just uh, not it's just not in me. I'll tell you off air, but uh okay. yeah uh, <laughs> you know I've, I've had the uh pleasure of making acquaintance with some extraordinarily high profile people. So I I'll just say that.
0: Interesting. Shout out to Barack Obama. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, okay. Very, very last one. Since you since you punted on that one, um, do you ever get recognized in New York City? Um, I, most places I'm guessing you're safe, but in New York City, it wouldn't shock me. So
3: great question, especially for this week. So I was uh, hanging out with Anna Kramling the other day because she's in the States right, yeah. and we were having this exact conversation. Like she asked me, oh, like how often do you get recognized? Because we've just been talking about streaming and all that stuff. And then, I don't know, 15 minutes later, someone comes up to us and is like, can I take a photo with you? Now, this is late. It's New York. You assume people might be drunk or high <laughs> or whatever. And maybe this person was. And I was like, why? And <laughs> I, I don't want to be standoffish. You know, New Yorkers have a bad rap and I'm not trying to add on to that. But like I said, you don't know what people are up to. When someone asks, can I take your like, oh, like, let me take a photo with you. That's not really a, an intro that makes you. Think, oh, these people recognize me. It's like, mm, maybe they're up to something and just cracking jokes. So then I was like, why? And then this person's apparently cousin is like, oh, it's not, this is not who you think they are. Sorry to bother you, whatever. And, they, and the guy goes, no, no, no. I love chess. That's GM Hess and Anna Kramling." So <laughs> okay. that happened. And I was telling Anna that I don't get recognized that regularly, but when I do, it happens multiple times in a week. So oh. that happened on Tuesday, I want to say. And then today's Friday. Yesterday, I was just walking, and this couple is like, oh, excuse me. And I thought they were going to ask for directions. And they're like, oh, I'm a huge chess fan. I love your commentary. Oh, like, can we nice. take a photo with you. So this week alone, it's been three. Uh-huh. And then it won't happen for, like, a stretch of months. And then it will be, like, you know, three in a week. So it's very weird. And maybe it's uh, just me making up, you know, random uh, – facts here, but I do that's what tends to happen is I just go unrecognized for a while, live my life. The people who recognize me are just my friends. And then when I'm recognized, it's just like nonstop for a couple of days and then it blows over and I get to live my peaceful uh life uh off air. For somebody who is on camera all the time, I do not like being on camera. So that's another it's a fun fact about me.
0: Yeah. You you strike me as someone who wouldn't want like Throngs of people following you around, either. So it's probably an appropriate level of uh, recognition.
3: Yeah, I think that especially in this day and age, and not just chess, right? Like with all this access to people, there can be and in the streaming community, is always these talks of parasocial relationships where they, you know, they feel they know you, and you don't know who they are, right? They're just a random person in the street. That's not meant disrespectfully. It's just true, right? They have watched hours and hours of your content, and so they you know, know something about you and you, they're just someone you just pass in the street now. So it's, for me, it's a bit uncomfortable just because I have no aspirations to you know, be famous or be known. Like I don't post on social media. I don't stream that often. Um, so even when I'm recognized, it can still be a little bit uncomfortable. I try to be, um, you know, forthcoming and give people a photo or whatever, but I'm also you know protective of my space and of my time because, uh, unfortunately, um, I think people have experienced this way more than I have in the uh, content creation space, but you can unfortunately run into people who demand a lot more of you than you are willing to give. And it can veer from friendly fandom into uncomfortable, like, okay, now this person is kind of like not leaving and it just doesn't feel good. So of course, many, many, many people out there just want to say hi, maybe want to snap a photo, Um, but I I just feel like, you know, and I experience this on a very low scale, but I'm sure real celebrities, A-listers, right? Taking a photo with a fan, maybe it feels good to be recognized and have a fan, but that photo is for the fan and not for you, right? Mm -hmm. I'm never going to look for the photos that are taken of me. So uh, I think about this often. And, you know, obviously we just had this whole um, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial, and everyone is just watching it nonstop. And to me, it's just kind of uncomfortable. It's like, um, you know, it's people's private lives and, um, you know, I don't want to get into a conversation with the judicial system, but it just is one of those things that I think about often about how, uh, I present myself and how I try to be very honest. And I, I don't, whenever I stream, I'm, I'm actually very clear. I'm like, unless you are my friend in real life, like no one in this chat is my friend. And I, it's like a running joke where, uh, it's like, I'm coming after my chat, but, uh, I just don't want any misconceptions because we do live in a time where, um, unfortunately there are a lot of people who do, you know, seek refuge in the internet in ways that are maybe not, um, super healthy for them and may make them feel that there's a situation that isn't exactly how they perceive it. So, uh, yeah, again, not to ma- you I was supposed to end on a positive note get you excited. <laughs> and now I'm once again going down the sad rabbit hole.
0: Okay, so we'll end with one final positive thing to say about the candidates. What What are you looking forward to most, Robert?
3: I think the fact that we don't know who the favorite is. That's really exciting. And last yeah. time, there were just clouds hanging over the, the field. When, um, you know, Rajaba pulled out the last second and MVL was able to make it and then they stopped halfway. It just didn't feel like a tournament. It felt like two very distinct events that were like almost on a foreign planet because the whole world was unfortunately dealing with uh, you know, a pandemic and it was uh, you know, and it still remains something that we need to keep our eyes on in a sad situation. But I think this time around um, the the event taking place in Madrid, the uh, host the uh, Palacio Santona, if I'm uh, pronouncing it correctly, uh, the Madrid Chamber of Commerce there. It is beautiful. It's like artwork on the walls. It feels regal. It feels like a place where chess players are respected. They're held in high regard. And that's not surprising because of how much Spanish culture in Spain loves chess. But I'm really excited to be a part of that. I mean, I've been commentating online for most events and You get to now go to a major European city, one of the premier travel destinations in the world. You're surrounded by chess lovers and, you know, we're all there for the same purpose to see which of these eight contestants can win and face Magnus Carlsen asterisk, uh, you know, if he accepts, but I just think that the candidates is a really fun tournament. Like I said, round robin tournaments for the most part, eh, whatever I can do without them. But this event in particular, everyone it's first or last right no quick draws none of that stuff like the players have to fight because who cares if you score third place nobody nobody remembers that nobody in the field wants that they want first place and so i think that it could be the perfect tournament to get back to over the board where everybody cares all eyes are on it and we have eight very worthy players who are taking part and, like I said, you don't know who's going to win. Will it be the youngster, the teenager, Farouja? Will it be Dingley Ren, who you know questionably even got entered in the field? Will it be Fabiano, who gets a second chance at Magnus? You know, can he return to the twenty eight hundred plus form? Will it be Hikaru, and chess lacks sponsorship. It has historically. There are, of course, some sponsors that we're very grateful for. Uh, but Hikaru Nakamura, Magnus Carlson, could you? Think of two bigger names in chess, because I certainly can't. And so the eyeballs that would be on a matchup like that, and just the eyeballs anytime Hikaru plays, I mean, Hikaru Nakamura will be there. And he may be the number one attention grabber, the headliner in the sphere of uh, the online fans. But for those of us who have been deeply ingrained in the chess world, you know, he in many ways, just one of a bunch, right? Uh, and that's said with respect for every single player because of their prowess, because of their hard work, because of their dedication to chess. But I just, I I can't even put into words, I know I'm rambling here, but I can't concisely um, sum this up and be like, this is why I'm looking for the candidates. It's everything all at once. Just the stress, the excitement, the just joy of being in an environment where people love chess and, I will be tired. I promise you that because I give every ounce of energy into my commentary, but I will not take a moment for granted and I will try to give the very best coverage that I possibly can.
0: There you have it. June 17th, 9 a.m. NYC time. Uh, can't wait, Robert. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Um, you're getting me excited again. So, uh, so I think that's a good note to end on. Um, people, I think, know where to find you. So thanks for being so generous with your time, Robert. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, always learn a lot and always fun talking chess with you. You as well, Ben. Thanks for having me. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by AimChess.com. Aim Chess, of course, has an algorithm which reviews your games and gives you actionable advice of what aspects of your game to work on. I have a lot to work on. I've been in a blitz slump, so I was eager to check out Aim Chess and see which aspects of my game are struggling. It helped me with some specific openings I need to tighten up. I need to play faster. I need to blunder less. Honestly, I think a lot of it is tied to when I play. That also is a factor you must take into consideration. Are there distractions? Are you tired when you're playing? Aim Chess can help you isolate all these variables and give you actionable puzzles and lessons based on the data that it gleans. And if you check out aimchess.com and decide to subscribe, you can use the code perpetual30 to save 30%. So go have a look at aimchess.com and try it out for free
2: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: And we are here for part two of our candidates preview. We are joined by the official numbers correspondent. He is just finding out that he's been called the official numbers correspondent of Perpetual Chess. He is the writer of the Indispensable Chess blog and Twitter account Chess by the Numbers. Uh, our guest, Ty Bruce Zimmerman, uses statistical models to assess probabilities in high profile chess events. Uh, he helped us out as we talked about the World Championship last year, and I think I certainly learned from it and enjoyed it, and I think a lot of listeners did as well. So for the second biggest event on a chess calendar or in a non-world championship year, possibly the biggest event, the candidates, we are excited to welcome back uh, accountant slash uh, chess data scientist, Ty zimmerman How's it going, Ty? Going good. Good. And Ty, as I said moments ago before we hit record, just want to thank you because uh, listeners should know Ty's working a bit ahead of schedule. Here we are recording on May 28th. It's about uh, a few weeks out from the candidates and Ty is just recovering from writing about and sharing data about the Chessable Masters. So, uh, Ty, thank you for for taking the time to to look ahead with us. Happy to be here. Yeah. And Ty, you flagged some interesting things already just in our sort of preliminary conversation. So maybe we could start by your sharing with the listeners what's different about trying to assess um, statistical favorites in the candidates in particular.
1: So it's hard to say what is different per se. Um, That's outside the scope of the numbers. But what the numbers show me is that ELO just doesn't predict the winner of Candice tournaments very well. Um, Why is hard to say. I have some theories, but theories aren't really what I like to deal in. But the numbers show that there's just no guarantee the highest rate of player wins, or, I mean, there's never a guarantee, but more so than other tournaments, performance rating and results and who wins and who finishes at the top of the table, almost completely disconnected from ratings coming in.
0: Yeah. Interesting. And uh, again, as we were saying, we couldn't help but chat a little bit about it even before we press record. But we're dealing with a small sample, we should say. There haven't been that many candidates to begin with. So I do find it of interest. And like you, I immediately start going to theories of why uh, ELO might be less predictive in uh, the candidates in particular. But the one thing we should caveat is like all the conclusions we draw are going to be based on small sample size. Right.
1: Yeah. So it, maybe it is worth mentioning a couple theories that I think are plausible. Uh, okay, and I don't have proof of these. I ha- statistical or otherwise. But one thing about ELO is it has a pretty heavy recency bias. Your most recent games affect your rating a lot more than the games you played a couple years ago. And once a player is in the candidates, it's logical that they would largely shut down in terms of showing their prep in terms of, A lot of things about how they might play so it's reasonable to think that players might not show their current their true form in the events leading up to the candidates we saw i think an example of that theory in the recent grand chess tour event where half the field was people that are in the candidates and none of them scored over 50 percent in that tournament Mm -hmm. Um, and there's other examples Famously, people yeah. doing really badly and say, Z and then coming exactly. in and winning the Fabiano.
0: candidates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to the same example. Yeah. But, I mean, it. yeah, it does make some sense. I mean, uh, they had an interesting conversation on the recent Chicken Chess podcast where Jan Gustafsson was saying, like, okay, maybe in this day and age, like, that whole hiding their prep thing might be overblown because we're all working with the same engines. Uh, so, it's not so much a matter of, like, unleashing novelties that you're saving for the candidates as it might have been, you know, in, in prior generations, but nonetheless, um, there's questions of motivation and, you know, it's not so much hiding prep as like, uh, maybe not playing the opening you're working on something like that. So it's not like you have some novelty you're unleashing, but nonetheless, you're not, you're not trying to maximize your win probability in the tournaments just preceding the candidates, which at the elite level, like any edge that you don't take is gonna uh filter through to your ELO and then hurt you in the uh possible betting markets and the um and the um your stuff like your your model based on rating. Um any other theories you wanna share, Ty, before we get to what your numbers uh tell us?
1: Uh well so not so much a theory of why ratings haven't connected, but there's one, the one other thing is even if those fluctuations are relatively small, the thing about a Candidates tournament is the players are all very close to each other already. So Mm. if the ratings are 20, 30 points off going in, that makes a big difference in the odds because the margins are so slim because everyone's between 2750 and 2800 most of the time. And so those little error, er, those little errors in how Elo reflects a player's strength coming in, magnify, and when you try to predict it, that throws it off further. And yeah, in addition to the general problems with trying to highlight with trying to predict a tournament like this based on Elo, I want to highlight that in this particular field that we have this year, there are also reasons several players who. Maybe even less accurately rated than normal.
0: Interesting. Uh, uh, based just um, based. Do you want to? Based on COVID, I'm guessing. And, yeah, with COVID
1: um, and activity, um, we have Rajabov has played almost nothing. Now, my right. the, the odds I'm going to give you are based on their live ratings today, and there is Norway Chess coming up, so his odds might actually change depending on his results right. there. Uh, but. And with it, the rest of the field. But we have no data. We have no data on how he's played since the (laughs) since before the last candidates even. He just has not been playing chess at all. So we can predict based on his rating, but it doesn't tell us anything about 2022 Rajabov. And really, there's a very similar thing with Ding unless you really trust that round of games he played in China to reflect his current playing strength, but the circumstances of those games, multiple games a day. uh, I'm not sure you talked about whether motivation in those Mm internments leading up to, to maximize. I'm not sure his opponents had so much motivation to maximize their win probability in those games either. So there's a a lot of room to wonder if that actually trued up his rating or was irrelevant to the sample. And Faruja hasn't played much in the last six months either. And then we have Nakamura, who had who had been retired until the Grand Prix. So we have essentially a very stale old rating, and then he gains points in the Grand Prix, but his current rating that were his current live rating is lower than his Grand Prix performance. So the question is: Is he still underrated? Was his Grand Prix performance really reflective of his current strength, or did he overperform in the Grand Prix? Are we going to see regression to the mean? Is his current rating accurate? I don't know. So we have yeah. a whole lot of players in the field where when I actually look at their current rating, I have questions about its accuracy to begin with.
0: Yeah. Okay. So huge asterisk huge uh, going asterisk. in. Yeah. And I agree. And that's part of what makes this up. I mean, uh, all candidates, I think, are compelling. But yeah, that the, that certainly makes it even more interesting to me than if there were like someone 50 points ahead of the field uh, in in like peak form. I mean, to me, it's a very wide range of uh, outcomes. But let's get to it, Ty. So I also pulled the most recent numbers from BWIN, uh, one of the few betting sites where I've been able to find um, uh, betting odds and converted those to probabilities. And I know that you also have your ELO-based um, um, model. And one thing I just note about the BWIN, often these betting markets on chess are not like you can't bet a million dollars on it, you know, and obviously the more you can bet on something, the air quotes sharper the price is going to be. But I will note that the line has moved because I had looked before and uh, and it, it looks like Fabi's been bet up a little bit um, and Ding's been bet up a little bit. Anyway, I'll get to those. But let's hear your numbers, Ty. So what does uh what does your model assess as uh, you could just re- read them one to eight in terms of uh, probability if you're up for it?
1: Absolutely. So. Obviously, my model is driven by Elo, and the highest-rated player in the field is Ding, so he is our favorite at twenty-eight point five percent. Okay. And I'll, there's a note there, which twenty-eight point five percent is not that high for a favorite. That puts you know the rest of the field at seventy-one point five. So he's really a, he's a favorite in best chances, but he's nothing near an odds-on favorite. Wide-open tournament, always fun. Next. Is Alareza Ferrugia at twenty point one percent? Then I have uh, Fabiana Caruana fourteen point eight percent.
0: Wow, that's that's a lot low. Like, uh, yeah, a lot lower than the betting market. But go on, we'll discuss it when when we're done.
1: Jan de at nine point one percent. Richard report at eight point six percent. Hikaru Nakamura at 7.5%, Timur Rajabov at an even 6%, and Jan Christoph Duda at 5.3%.
0: Okay. So the betting market is actually significantly different in a few places. Um, here are the betting market's probabilities. Ding exactly at 28%. And I actually rounded these numbers, so I shouldn't say exactly, but I'm saying the same number as you, same first two digits as you, 28%. But then it has Fabi at 24%, Ali Reza at 18%, Hakaru and Duda both at 8%, Nepo at 6%, Rapport at 4%, and Rajabav at 3%. And I should say that um, you know, if you actually bet on chess, they take a, a healthy percentage. So if you add up all the percentages in uh, in, in uh, on the betting market, it adds up to 120%. But I kind of backed that out and returned it to adding up to 100%. So you can actually, if you bet these prices, they'd be slightly worse. But anyway, um, so a few notable changes. It seems like the market likes Fabi, market doesn't like Rajabov. Um, and the market likes Nakka a little better than your model, I have to say. I'm I, I, and I have to agree with the market on uh, on these assessments. I don't, but you know, it's all we're kind of splitting hairs. But it's still interesting to talk about.
1: Well, and I have to agree with the market to some extent too. That's where I wanted to really open with all the caveats about using an ELO driven model here, and highlight in particular uh, Nakamura being having better odds in the market makes a lot of sense because if you look at his performance rating at the Grand Prix that got him into this tournament, he seems seemed there like he was playing at much higher than a 2760 level, and my model just has him at the 2760 live rating that he got to, but he got to that gaining a lot of points and not catching up to his actual performance yet. And then the other person the betting market really likes is Fabi, and that is really consistent with all the conventional wisdom of the value of experience and also uh, putting a premium on players who have proven that they can win an event or, or like this before, which I'm not a hundred percent convinced of statistically, but I'm not convinced it's false either. Um, it, it sometimes sometimes there's conventional wisdom and the stats are just like, no, that doesn't make that, that that's not in the numbers. So I like to try to disprove things and I've tried and failed to disprove that particular theory that winning previous events like this means something. I do think that it's captured in rating. I mean, you win events like this, you gain a lot of rating points. So, Mm -hmm. but there is one variable that I want to highlight that another predictive model out there that I respect used, uh, the smarter chess, uh, pub has a prediction where they use not only current rating, but also a player's peak rating.
0: Yeah. I was wondering about that. Shout out to smarter chess. And how was it different?
1: Uh, They, well, Fabiano is the player who has a peak rating much higher than his current uh, yeah, more, the, uh, Nakamura also has a peak rating much higher than his current. So those both of them, just like in the betting markets, their odds are much higher in Smarter Chess's model than in mine by factoring that peak rating in. And that's something it just conceptually it does make a lot of sense. Uh, if we talk about the candidates as a very unique tournament, it's what people might save years of prep for. It people might play differently there's something to be said for not just looking at how people have played recently, but how good have they ever been? Cause that might be the level they get back to if. And so that might speak a lot to potential. So I thought it was really interesting to use peak rating as a variable there. And if you do that, yeah. it brings you a lot closer to where the betting markets are at. And it does make sense to me, but I didn't find such compelling evidence in the small sample size we have to build anything like that into my model. Uh, I chose to just continue using the model that I've always used. I think that consistency is also valuable for people that have been following my stats for a long time.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and it's good, you know. You it defeats the purpose of a model if you're looking at the outputs and then tweaking the model to get the result that you want. You know, if you're exactly. if you're torturing the data, if you're torturing the data. So, um, so yeah, I, I commend you for that. And then, yeah, we'll we'll link to um, to Matt from Smarter Chess's blog post as well. Um, because yeah, I do enjoy their coverage as well. And it is worth getting different perspectives and forming your own assessment. One other thing I'd mention about the betting markets is, you know, something like that. Again, I don't even know how easy it is to bet on something like Bwin. I mean, they're based in, in Europe. Um, so, uh, that makes it, might make it harder for American chess fans to, to bet. May, some more places to bet may crop up, but anyway, there may be a factor where like, you know, in sports, like, the the Lakers and the Man United's like the most popular teams tend to get bet up a little bit. They can often be overpriced relative to uh teams that have fewer fans. And I think there could be a similar dynamic in play in a betting market where someone like Fabiano and Naka, like irrespective of their chest strength, they may just have the most fans. Certainly Naka. So uh not surprising in that regard either that he's um his price is going to be a little um higher than than it would be if you do it strictly based on Elo.
1: And I was actually surprised his price wasn't higher than it is because he was mm-hmm. his price was a touch higher than my ratings, but only what like a, a couple percentage points. And there's a decent a decent statistical argument for that with performance rating recently, et cetera. So he was actually um, priced pretty fairly relative to pure Elo, and I thought that there might be a bigger bump from his fan base.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I certainly—I um, don't think it's a bad price betting wise. Ape, ape, you know, getting twelve to one or whatever it might be, um, it wouldn't wouldn't shock me if uh, if uh, Nakamura won. <laughs> wow. um, yeah. So uh, my last questions, Ty, and you—you know—you may want to punt on this, but if you were to, uh, the two questions are: if you were to buy one of these stocks at the price, obviously any any bet you make. You're more likely to lose than to win. As you said, it's not like Ding is a favorite over the field. So A, if you were to buy one of these as a stock and B, who you actually would pick to win. And again, since you're making the model, I'll understand if you uh, punt, especially on the second question.
1: Well, yeah, on the first, uh, on the first question who I'd pick, there was one player whose betting odds came in a little lower than my model. And so that's when that's always the type of thing that a modeler likes to jump at. So I'd be inclined to jump at uh, that price on Ali Reza. I think his chances are better than that, especially because the 20% in my model is after losing a few rating points at a tournament that I don't think reflected his playing strength. Uh, He he would have been closer to 25% in my model if he was still rated 28.04. So getting him at 18% in the betting market that's an intriguing number to me i do think despite all the debates about experience he certainly may not win it everyone is an underdog but i think he could i think there's a chance he's just the best player in the field right now and we ha- he hasn't proven that yet he would have he will have to in june but there's a chance he might be and if anyone if anyone has a chance to really just come in and blow the field away, and be much better than we thought, I think it's him.
0: Interesting. So, th- so uh, Ty, of course, being has not heard my conversation with Robert Hess, but listeners hopefully will have. And yeah, coming in on the other side of Robert Hess, I'll arrange a bet between you guys off air, Ty. But uh, but yeah, that's that's what makes this fun. And yeah, someone like Ali Reza again, wide range of outcomes. So I totally totally get why you would buy that stock although i have to say I, uh robert made a very compelling argument that you'll you'll eventually be able to hear but i mean it you know it gets to what you would suspect lack of experience and the sort of gauntlet of just playing so many strong players one after another um so should be interesting yeah and and yeah you don't your your model speaks for itself i guess in terms of uh picking a winner so i guess i won't i won't force that out of you other than ali reza being a decent buy at 18% or whatever all right. Well, Ty, this has been great. You're going to write I, about this as well. Correct? I
1: am. And I am going to okay. write about it. And I'm going to write about it as the tournament progresses. So that's actually, I think, a good point here. The odds at, before the tournament starts are, of course, what you use in a preview. And this is the most exciting tournament on the calendar. So, of course, everyone wants a preview and we're looking forward to it. But for me, given all the uncertainty. The most interesting thing is going to be, as the tournament progresses, tracking how these odds shift. That's one of the things that I've always tried very hard to do, is keep those odds updating round by round and show use it to show some of the narrative of the tournament in a new way. Because uh, with the, the the thing is, with 14 rounds of chess, I don't know that too many of us have a great intuitive sense of how important an early win or loss really is. Um, you're watching a football game and you see a first quarter touchdown. If you've watched a lot of football, you, you have a pretty good sense of what that did to like the odds of winning the game. But I think when it comes to the odds of winning a chess tournament like this, a lot of fans might not have a great intuition for how important, how much of a swing it is when there's a decisive game early versus in the middle versus late. So. That's one of the things that I really try to do is keep those odds updated every round and watch those swings and see who, as they win a couple games, takes over as the favorite, how overwhelming of a favorite might they become, how far back do they fall if they then lose a game. And that shifting narrative throughout the tournament is, I think, a bigger value added that I'm able to provide than my initial odds. The initial odds are are a baseline from which all of that flows.
0: And do you have a uh, you know the well documented tendency of uh, Nepo to perform worse as uh, as tournaments go on? You've got that in your model, right?
1: <laughs> I did not build a factor for that into my model. I don't have any <laughs> player specific factors in my model. It's all just based on their other than their what their live rating is. Uh, I also yeah. don't have Rajabov's draw rate in my model. so okay. <laughs> that, yeah, actually, and, and and that actually might be something that I should have that's if I really wanted to make it as accurate as possible. if it was meant as a betting model, not an enter it's meant as an entertainment model. If it was right. meant as a betting model and I wanted extra complexity and to maximize accuracy, I might want some individualized draw rates and that might be why uh, Rajabov had a little bit lower odds on the betting market. It's hard to win yeah. the tournament without winning games. and
0: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and without really trying to win, which mm-hmm. it's, uh, <laughs> has been an issue for him at times. Um, all right, well, Ty, this has been great. Looking forward to your coverage at Chess Numbers on Twitter. The blog is called Chess by the Numbers. If you search for it, you'll find it. You've got a Patreon page now, right, Ty?
1: I do, yes. Thank you for suggesting that last time we talked
0: yes yes and and listeners if you are a regular reader of ties as i am and you're able to uh definitely recommend supporting him um supporting his his work as i do so yeah i can't wait uh these these last two conversations with with you and robert Hess have gotten me more excited so now we get back to waiting and get back to our families here on a memorial day weekend in uh in the united states
1: absolutely uh yeah i can't wait for this tournament okay. it's going to be amazing
0: Okay, thanks as always, Ty. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout-out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, beneficial one on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, Ben, at PerpetualChessPod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters, those who choose to join that community based on their level of support, can do things like submit questions for guests of the show have access to live zoom q a lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over chess games answering questions stuff like that and you can even get access to ad free perpetual chess if that's your preference so but most of all thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode